So, Birdo, there's a new Beatles documentary called Get Back on Disney Plus that just came out. Get out. Put together by Peter Jackson of Lord of the Rings fame. Mm -hmm. And I thought we would watch it and nerd out on Beatles dumb and also maybe talk a little bit about the psychology of the Beatles and also just in general what it's like to be in a band. What do you say? Yeah, what is it, an hour and a half? Do you want to watch it right before we record? It's eight hours long. <laughs> it's an eight-hour-long documentary. This is the Psychology of Seattle podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Kirk Honda. I'm a therapist and a professor. My name is Humberto Castaneda, and I make guanabana-flavored water. So whenever we do an episode on the Beatles, I always feel like we're going to attract some people who don't <laughs> really know us, and I also feel and therefore feel compelled to justify my Beatles cred <laughs> in a nutshell I grew up with the Beatles being on the radio in the 70s and then when I turned I don't know like 13 years oldish I got my hands on a best of uh, Beatles album the the orange one the the red one the first one the red one okay yeah. and love me do yep, please yep. please me and I'm 13 years old and instantly I was like this is the best music I've ever heard and I would sit on my bed with my wooden a tennis racket that I never used. It was just like given to me by an uncle or something. And I would pretend that I was Paul McCartney and I could kind of pick, you know, I, before I was a musician, really, I could mm -hmm. sort of hear the voices. I, I started to figure out because there would be documentaries. Yeah, and yeah. so there was enough information where I was starting to get to know the voices and, and who was who and right. who was playing what. And, and I, so that was when it began. And then it really flourished throughout high school where I, you know, started getting all the albums and super into it. And uh, I've told this before on the podcast that my entire bedroom, every inch was covered in <laughs> only Beatles stuff. I didn't have, oh my God. I didn't have, you know, <laughs> U2 wow. posters. What age? Uh, you know, 16. 16. I didn't have a Lamborghini <laughs> on my wall. Uh, I did have a Captain Kirk uh, a life-size poster okay. on my door. But aside from that, it was all Beatles, and it, it was covered. Oh. The ceiling, the walls, and there were big posters and postcards and records oh, and man. little trinkets that I, I just I, – I was it was like a museum to the Beatles, and I was obsessed, and I had all these little moments. You know, the first time I heard the White Album – and because, you know, back mm -hmm. then you couldn't go on YouTube or oh, no. Spotify. It's like you had to get your hands on these albums. And, right. and uh, it's such a discovery to go through that. Yeah. Oh. And as I started to write music in high oh, school, man. I would say 50% or more, 75% of my inspiration was the entire Beatles and solo career of each um, Beatle, mm -hmm. their catalog, because I was buying up all those records as well. The and then not only the music, of course, but what they stood for and their relationships with each other and their stardom and their charm and <laughs> the way they moved, you know, the way that Paul McCartney kind of flips his hair in 1964, it still kind of gets me and <laughs> and reading about their, you know, their lives and, and all this stuff. And so when it came to this documentary that was shot in 1969 early 1969 i had a very limited understanding of it because they would only show little clips in right. these documentaries but anyway my point is is that when i you know pre-watching this documentary i'm just gonna say i've got to be like i don't know where i stand i now i will differentiate me from super super fandom 
in that I don't know like every tiny little detail. I, I know a lot of details, but I yeah. don't know every tiny little detail about their lives the way that some people do. You know, sure, you yeah. essentially call them like Beatles scholars, essentially. Yeah. And, th- and those they're out there. And if you're one of those people listening right now, there might be a bit of frustration because we might not go into that because we're just not. Yeah, or we might get stuff wrong. And- yeah, little, little details. Hey. Yeah, absolutely. So, so I would just, and I've repeatedly said throughout my life that the Beatles are my favorite band. I've never changed that since I was 13 years old. Whenever anyone asks who I would want to talk to, if I could talk to someone or hang out with someone, I'm, I'm pretty sure it was always Paul McCartney <laughs> for a variety of reasons, sure. musician-wise and, and all sorts of reasons. Uh, I don't have any illusion to believe that Paul McCartney is a likable person in life. <laughs> like, there's reasons to believe that I actually might not uh, like him if I really hung out with him a lot. I don't know. So I'm, I'm not one of those, like, Paul McCartney you fans. You guys would be BFFs? I'm, well, no, I'm just saying that <laughs> he might kind of annoy me. Like, sure, I'm sure. just saying, like, I, I'm not one of those apologists of Paul McCartney. Who knows? But, but I will, uh, I do consider him to be the most important musician and artist in my life. You know, there's just so many different things about what mm-hmm. he did and, and also John Lennon uh, almost equally as well. And so I'm a super fan. Berto, give us your creds. Yeah. I mean, so I was, I came into this, uh, in a couple ways. My cousin, Diego, uh, amazing organist. He had a Yamaha organ that was, you know, two, two, um, decks, they call them, I guess. And the pedals, and that guy was awesome. He would just entertain so well on that thing. Um, and he could play everything. He'd play like sambas and salsas and then gringo music, like all over the place. So he taught me my very first song on a piano, in this case an organ, ever in my life. And it was Let It Be. Also, he had the blue and the red, both you know albums. So whenever I would go over to my cousin's house, and he's, he was older than me, so I looked up to him. I was in... Beatles heaven, you know, and I, that's all he had. He only had those two albums. So I didn't actually, growing up, I unfortunately didn't have each one of the albums, you know, when I was a kid, but I had that, and that was plenty of examples yeah. of the great music. Yeah, that's, I'm guessing that's got to be like 25 to 30 songs. Yeah, and then the, like the fact that my first song I ever learned to play was Let It Be, right? That forms a strong connection. Another thing that happened is... So you learned it on organ, not piano. Well, yeah, although I didn't... Oh, actually, no, it was... Yes, in fact, it was both hands on on two different keyboards because he taught me how to do... So it wasn't exactly the piano part. He taught me the chording on the left hand and the melody, um, the main melody of the piano on the right hand, but I was also doing the pedals, I remember. Ah. So it was kind of a, a different arrangement. And then uh, the other thing that happened is we took a trip when I was 14 years old. So when you hear that song, does it take you back? Though? Oh, it's dead. let me take you back. Yes, absolutely. Yeah. And, and at 14 years old, I took a trip from Bogota to Manizales. Manizales is a small city in the, Andi, in the uh, coffee region of Colombia. And it was with my cousin, and including this cousin that I'm mentioning, Diego. And it's an eight-hour eight drive. Like, this is a long, and it's, talk about long and winding roads. <laughs> These are scary winding hill roads where you can fall off and, you know, eight hours. And on that ride, we had a couple tapes, and one of them was, like, this Beatles tape that had a lot of their early songs. Um, it was, I think it was, uh, it wasn't, like, an official tape. It was, someone had made it, you know. And so it had a, a set of different songs. I don't remember all of them, but I know for a fact it had um, 
like s- some of the very early ones, like Love Me Do, and it had uh, All My Loving, things like that. And we listened to that over and over and over, over those eight hours. So that also like stayed in my mind. Then I moved to this country when I was 15, and my first real friends that I made were all into music, uh, and a couple of them... Well, wait, so were you a, a super fan in Bogota? I was a super fan as in, I knew who the Beatles were, I admired those two albums So you weren't a immensely. super fan back then, you were, you were a fan. But I was a fan. I didn't know enough about them, because like... Other than, I, like I said, I knew those two albums. I knew my yeah. song. I think I, I think super fandom it would be in this metric defined by when you had all the albums. Right, right, right. Except I wasn't there yet. Okay. And then I moved here, and you know, you know, Shun, my my Japanese friend, he was very big into the Beatles, and then so we that was something we had in common. We would talk about it, and he actually had, I don't know if he had all the albums, but he had several of the albums when he was in high school. Uh, so I started like borrowing and then I think I finally started buying my own. And then I started reading books and biographies and all the stories. Okay. Now you're getting into Now I got into, there was, there was a time probably in 1993, 94 where I knew so much lore about the Beatles that I'd that, forgotten all of it, but I knew so much that's that like I was late probably, high school. Uh, I was a uh, first year of college, first and second year. I was insufferable, I am sure. Anyone who got around me, I would be like, blah, 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 Beatles, blah, 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 blah. Um, and it was fun because I would, I would find these biographies and I'd talk about like, oh, some of them were very serious about the music. Some of them were very catty about the relationships. Some of them were all about the, like, the, the story with uh, their, their manager and Brian Epstein and stuff. And some of them were more about their early days. Some and you're of them a musician. Later at, days. You're a musician at this point. I'm definitely. I'm in a band. We're playing covers. We're playing Beatles covers. Okay. So that's when I was really. Oh, and I, by the way, I was in the music theory program at UW. Yeah. So all the stars aligned, and I was super fan. You weren't a music major. I was a music minor. The yeah. reason I wasn't a major is because you had to do the a practical instrument, and yeah. I, I I didn't want to do that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Did you know I was. I was a minor as well of music. We've talked UW? about it, yeah. Oh, okay. I didn't know you were. Well, but you actually were in the choir? No. No. no oh, I, you I were didn't... in a jazz choir in high school? High school, yeah. Yeah. So I, yeah, I, I would have had to like take a piano or take some instrument and yeah. do that. And, yeah, and I didn't want to like... I think you and I had the same thought. In process. terms of what a, a bachelor's degree from the University yeah. of Washington in music... What it would give you, I wasn't really interested in that life. Well, because right, because I wasn't looking for a degree to like go do something with it. Right. The degree was incidental in that I wanted to take those classes. Right. Wanted to take theory. I took the year training, so you know I learned a ton. But it was certainly not. Uh, yeah, I wasn't looking to do more with that. You know, I didn't learn much. I I took classes like I mean I I learned things, but nothing practical. I would say. Like I even took a class on composition thinking I would learn about composition, Mm -hmm. but it was so, I don't know, it was so oriented towards classical that it just didn't really resonate with me at all. And I don't think the professor really appreciated. It was just a class of like five people. Imagine that University of Washington, five people (laughs) sitting around a piano and I'm the only like non-major, you know, I'm, I'm the random dude who just took the class, you know? And Uh, so, I mean, I did three years of theory and two years of ear training. Two, three straight years of theory. Three straight. Years so you were just a minor, like you. Well, I the you reason went beyond. Yeah, I had more credits, but the reason you can't get a major without the practical, you just can't. Right. They won't give you one. Yeah. So I mean, because I I think I took probably like 
I don't know, out of how many quarters are, do we have in a full degree? Is is that so three, so 12? Yeah. I took two full quarters of music classes. Okay. Yeah, I took I took three full years of theory, two years of ear training. Anyway. And it so, was So fun, you were, but... uh, you're a Beatles fan. So, you know, we're into it. Yeah. And, and uh, so let me give a, su- a summary of what we're talking about here. Is Let It Be, if you're not familiar, people out there, was... Originally, the Beatles in 1969, so they're they're well past their floppy, you know, love me do days, floppy hair, love me do days. <laughs> they're they're kind of past their psychedelia phase, but maybe the public doesn't really know that yet. And <laughs> by, by the way, I, I wrote this down as the very first thing that I wrote here. Um, I basically had such a warped sense, not just about this documentary, like before this always about the timing of all their life events right in my head well we're gonna get there so, okay okay we'll so, get there so, but, I, so but yes, the, ti- the like, timeline yeah the timeline is so interesting because I, I had a similar uh, but i think i resolved it earlier uh, a long time ago but anyway so this is early 1969 and this is post sergeant peppers post white album post magical mystery tour post yellow submarine and they're uh, they want to work on a live show because they're not doing live shows anymore. And by the way, this is part of it. They hadn't had a hit, a single, in five months. Yeah. <laughs> I don't even know if it's that long, honestly. That's what they said on the thing. It's oh, like, okay. It's, it's been five months since we had, hey, Ju- hey, Jude. Hey, Jude. How do they say it? Hey, Jude. I, I forget how they pronounce it. What do you hey, mean? Hey, Jude. Hey, Jude. What are you talking about? Like you know, because of their Liverpool accent. I'm trying to figure out what, where, what sort of uh, what hey you're talking Jude. about. Hey Jude. Well, it's like more pronounced or something. Oh, okay. Hey Jude. Well, they wouldn't get rid of the J. Let's just put it that Fair way. Uh, <laughs> you're like, you know how they say in Liverpool, "Hey Jude." Hey huh? Jude. No, it's the opposite. It's more like, "Hey Jude." Uh, but anyways, my point is that it's five months, and they're talking about it like, dude, we yeah. haven't had a hit. Yeah. For five we're getting that. We're getting that. So, so this. Uh, they decide that they want to do a live performance and they don't want to do an actual live performance because they've given up on that years ago because live performing for them was very difficult because of all the screaming fans and the lack of security and yep. almost being killed in, in the Philippines and stuff. <laughs> and, and so they feel beholden to the fans to, to provide something, you know, some kind of live, they, they and maybe a lot of bands were like this back then, but there was this expectation of constant. You could almost consider them almost like YouTubers, like this expectation to constantly sure. provide content. You know, today Radiohead will put out an album every five years or something, yeah. and no one like hates them. Right? They're, it's just like, look, it's Radiohead. But back <laughs> then, when you were a band, it was just like you not only had to do the albums, but the singles and the live performances and the interviews, interviews and the tours. The, yeah. Tours. Like it was this con you, you had to be, cause there's no internet. So you, in order for you to be relevant or in their lives, you had to be physically in their town, like interfacing face to face with these individuals. Mm-hmm. Anyway. So they wanted to do a TV live performance and they, and uh, it, what it sounds like that they did is they're like, well, if we're going to, film a live performance on TV and broadcast it, why don't we do a little build-up to that where we film us writing and arranging these songs, and then it'll culminate in this live performance on TV. 
Well, and by the way, it feels like this was mostly, but not entirely, but mostly Paul's inclination. Totally. Absolutely. It certainly wasn't George's. No, no. (laughs) Um, And so as they're doing it, as, as they're recording, as they're working on their songs, it's starting to not be so fun and they're starting to have some tension. So they change it uh, over time into a feature documentary rather than a, a, a live performance on TV. They record uh, several days, something like 60 hours of footage of the band writing and recording, um, and they release it as a documentary in the theaters, and it actually won an Academy Award for Best Original Song Score. Did you know that? <laughs> yeah. Uh, which makes total here. sense, because it's like, what was it up against in 1969? Yeah. Um, then, at some point, and Berto, maybe you know the detail on this, uh, the people who have control over this thing, they pulled it back and and never, re- never like, re-released it. It was never on VHS tape. It was never on right. TV. Like, it was fine for and i think it was just an hour and a half they condensed it down severely you know it was this very very short little thing compared to what footage they had and then at some point i think paul mccartney yeah i I think so paul never felt good about it yeah (laughs) he didn't like the let it be album result yeah he didn't like the whole thing so he didn't maybe like the way he looks because george was yelling at him and stuff and maybe i don't know yeah um but so I, i I don't know exactly, but it does seem what I remember is that that you know Apple Corp basically Paul said, yeah, let's let's pull let's it back. Yeah, so it became by the time you and I started knowing about it, it you couldn't watch it. It was like unavailable to us, which even during the VHS days was kind of weird. I don't know, like how did I watch this somehow? Well, they had bootlegs. Okay, so because I remember in college with my friends with Dave and Shane, like we watched right watched so, it somehow. So there were bootlegs and. Uh, they weren't official, you okay. know. Like you couldn't go to the blockbuster yeah, and get yeah. one, you know. Like, in fact, I, f- I felt like we got it at Scarecrow, maybe. Maybe I don't know if they would have carried. Bootlegs. Well, by then you're in the '90s, so I don't know if yeah. if that's different. But anyway, so I've I've uh, as a yeah. Beatles nerd on YouTube uh, over the past ten years, uh, there'll be little clips, yeah. and there'll be people analyzing a lot of the footage that is in this documentary that came out uh, last week on Disney Plus. I've already seen a lot of the beats bits and, yeah. that because because I don't know how people got their hands on it, but they would and they would pour over. There's certain yeah. YouTube channels uh, like there's this one YouTube channel called I think it's called Pop Goes the 60s. And he's just really well-spoken Beatles scholar. And he'll mm-hmm. like go over these things. And and he's very level headed when it comes to this sort of stuff. But but anyway, so then, I, I, sorry, I specifically remember that line, the George line, like. I'll play whatever you want me to play. I won't yeah. play if you don't want me to play. Because right. at the time, Dave, Shun, and I would always have band arguments. And so I remember us watching that and being like, ah, oh, you see, it happened to them too. And Dave's joke was like, yeah, see, they had fights too, but they were already huge at that point. <laughs> we're not anything. <laughs> yeah. So then Peter Jackson comes along of Lord of the Rings director fame, and he is a huge Beatles nerd and takes it upon himself to get all the footage, put all of his um, efforts to making this uh, a viewable movie again. And he released it. Uh, Well, then it was going to be released as a two-hour documentary in the theaters, but then COVID happened. So Peter Jackson went back into the studio and said, you know what? 
I want to kind of make my cut. Like I made a cut for the theaters, but now that it's not going to be released, let's just make it my my cut. And incidentally, they used machine learning to isolate the conversations because you know a lot of the conversations are happening when someone's noodling on a guitar or something yep. and so they use computers to yeah. get rid of the guitars and insert essentially like vo- uh, conversation uh, bits you know like an s would be a, a omitted by a guitar and so they would have to insert the s you know which what is I mean? why sometimes it, you the visuals are not matching the right they also my understanding is they also uh, upsampled uh, i think they also used some ml on it for like the visuals because right like the the original footage was which is still amazing to me that that grainy 16 millimeter footage can still have so much content right that you can you know make a digital version yeah they they clearly touched up a lot of the frames to make it more readable sort of so to speak and apparently you know kept pretty didn't invent things you know they they you know kept to they're just trying to sift through the noise to actually get because a lot of the conversations interesting ones that happened during the filming of this were the Beatles and others thought it was kind of behind the scenes. They didn't really think that this was going to be included because they're just having a private little conversation off to the side. So anyway, um, it's about to be released and it's produced by Ringo and Paul and there's all these naysayers, apparently. You know, they're saying, oh, it's Disney. They're going to clean it up. They're not going to, because there's a lot of dirt that happens. Yeah, yeah. And Paul is in charge of it. So, you know, he's going to make it himself look right. good. He's going to look great. And they're going to whitewash it. And, um, you know, everyone understands that, you know, Paul was the a-hole. And that George and John were victims of Paul's weirdness. And, um, you know, why do you think that narrative developed which by the way in my opinion maybe i have the wrong sense of this that developed later like in the 2000s because in the 90s everything i heard or at least everything i was reading and whatever was how it was all about john and yoko well so there were two narratives that developed right away uh one was it was all about not only john and yoko but yoko well, Yoko, sure. it wasn't. It, it was Yoko's fault. That was essentially the, sure, the but blame. you know, like the extension was that John didn't stop it. He was mesmerized by it, and, right? Some, and, some, yeah. or, you're right. But, but, but the thing was is that in the seventies in the United States, the dominant narrative was Yoko broke up the, yeah. the other, But the other narrative, like a second narrative to that, was especially about this get back, let it be uh, documentary footage was that. Paul was a dominant and being annoying, you know, and that he was the one. And then he was acting like he was trying to keep everything together. And then he snuck off and made his own album and released it before everyone else because he's a conniving little prick. You know what I mean? That that was definitely a narrative. But Yeah, but, I wonder if like, that was a narrative that missed me early because I was not the right age. And then when I was getting super into them, like I only, because I remember like, again, it, this was in the 90s, like mostly I only heard and knew about how terrible Yoko was. So why do you think out of, because watching this and knowing everything yeah. else that we do, reading all the other right. docu- you know, biographies, why would the, that be the only thing that people walk away with? Yoko, it's all Yoko's fault. There was some amount of racism. Yeah. I also think um, there was some weirdness to it. I mean, undeniably, she 
can be annoying. <laughs> like in the movie when she's screaming, I'm like, yeah, could do less of that. So <laughs> I want to go into that after you answer this question because right. I got a lot to say about that. Actually, if we're yeah. gonna be on that topic, <laughs> well, all, all I'm all I'm saying is I think that Yoko didn't do herself any favors in that regard because she was a bit eccentric and um and the influences she had musically as they started appearing many people including myself didn't really appreciate it so it was an easy target and then the fact is that after they broke up john went on to write many songs uh, about yoko and so one could mentally put dots together and be like oh yeah that must be it yeah yoko was the cause yeah i i would also say that obviously sexism and also everyone wants a villain you know yeah, it, sure. it's just easier to blame yeah. someone and then if it's not Yoko, then it must be Paul. And the gestalt that I have from this documentary, which I always knew, but this, but get back by Peter Jackson or, you know, edited by Peter Jackson. It was shot by, um, I can't remember the documentary guy's name, Michael something. Um, which, by, oh yeah, uh, that guy, I, I just found out today from looking at what he had done. He recorded a version of, do you know what Waiting for Godot is? Mm-hmm. It's this famous play. And he recorded a BBC version of it that I love, that I've only seen on YouTube. Had no idea who it was by, like who the director was. In 2001 or 2011 or something like this. And just today I found out it's he's the director. Mm. So it's much more complicated than that. And almost like eternally more complicated than any kind of biography could even encapsulate. The the documentary when you're watching this footage i'm watching i'm just like there's so many twists and turns and there's so, and and you of course are alerted to the fact that their relationships are deep yes however and i i don't think i'm saying the different thing to what you're saying cuz it's almost like what you're saying is like we all had like this superficial idea of what happened in reality it's so much deeper and i agree it's just that it's so deep that it comes out on the other side as being so obvious like oh yeah these are kids in their 20s yeah with all of a sudden crazy things thrust right right right. i'm not saying complicated like yeah yeah like like, hard to understand like there's aliens involved but but i'm just saying like their relationships are so deep it's like trying to to just trying to encapsulate why two people get divorced or something absolutely and also we all of us of course how we we're dumb as it is, but we could have all thought, wait, are these superheroes that are not human who have these very iconic reasons for doing decisions or are they very are they mundane, human, <laughs> mundane human beings yeah, right. who sit there one minute angry at each other, the next minute they're okay. And right. the next minute they're still angry. And, and then- we'll go into all that detail, <laughs> but let's talk about Yoko for yeah. a second. So as a Japanese American myself, okay, I've always had, you know, a, a bias of Pos- or trying to have a, a positive bias towards her because, you know, especially growing up, I didn't have a lot of people I could look up to, you know. And uh, so, you know, there are some great things about her. She's apparently a great artist. I, I don't, I'm not into that kind of art. Sure. Apparently, she's a strong person. She's, you know, intelligent and interesting. I mean, interesting enough to entice John Lennon and into intellectually stimulate him yeah. in, in a lot of ways. And there's that. And apparently some people appreciate her music. Um, 
I don't. I like. I found I disliked her even more. Not as a person. No. In fact, would you agree that as a person, I was pleasantly surprised. Like there was no moment in the documentary where I'm like, "Oh, there goes Yoko." Yeah. Other than the music thing. Yeah, but even like, then, like, right? So she is, she was extremely quiet. Yeah, she wasn't. You know, and we could imagine during the White Album sessions, the, from the descriptions, John and Yoko are sitting in the corner recording number nine, and you could just imagine that Yoko's barely doing anything. You know, it's mainly. Yeah. And even, you know, and it's true in the interviews as well. Whenever the two of them are being interviewed, John is always speaking for her. I don't know if you've ever noticed yes, that. Like, yes. she, she'll say one word and... He's John-splaining. Yeah, yeah. He'll just jump in. And and so... Almost apologetically. Yeah, I think almost kind Well, so I think apologetically or trying to cover up the fact that the things that she says are kind of annoying. Like... Like the things that she would offer. So, sure. so, so let me let me give you my opinion because I'd never seen her kind of, you know, behind the scenes, if you will, as as uh, with yeah. with John as yeah, we yeah. see in this documentary. And the thing that if I were there, like Paul, I would have been like, one, okay, she's a pleasant woman, and mm-hmm. she's sitting there, and she's not, she doesn't interrupt, or mm-hmm. you know, she's not trying to you know, uh, blow up our vibe. But when she does say things, they're um, like, she doesn't understand what's going on. She's one of the, she seems like one of those people that seems (laughs) like, like there was this one moment where John was making a total joke. Oh yeah. I remember he's, he's like, he's he's making fun of him. Oh, it was about masturbation, right? It was like, oh yeah. He turns to the camera and he has like everyone rolling, including Paul. And he's just like, and kids out there, remember that uh, winking <laughs> does not turn you blind, but it does make you short-sighted. Yeah, over and he, time. And, he, and he's wearing his glasses, <laughs> yeah, you yeah. know, and he's total deadpan, and everyone's rolling. And then Yoko says, <laughs> are you speaking from personal experience, John? And it's like... <laughs> You're just Yoko, explaining the joke! Yeah, like, Yoko, ah. that's the joke, you <laughs> dimwit. Like... <laughs> You know what I mean? Like, and you could just, yeah. um, like, that says know, something. You know, know, she's one of those people. Like, everyone but, gets the joke. But, but she, she's, like, ten steps behind. But I can, see, but see, here is what I was expecting based on my bias. I was expecting, you're watching this footage, and all of a sudden, Yoko, Yoko whispers to John, and John says, uh, Paul, actually, I think we should do blah, right? And and then you start realizing, oh, no, Yoko's trying to manipulate right. John. Yeah, it was none of that. It was none of that. There was none of that. Yeah, and I don't think I, at least in my later years of understanding, thought that that was the case. Maybe not more recently, but I certainly remember when I was... There's this iconic photo of them in the studio during the Let It Be recordings, and she, and they're looking all kind of sullen around the console, and Yoko's right there. And I remember thinking, ah, why is she interfering with everything? Yeah. you know, And she wasn't. Right. But you're right. So she was a little slow on the uptake for the jokes. And <laughs> yeah, and there were a number. There were a few other moments like that. Where but nothing annoyed me more than ah! right. And then that stuff. <laughs> like, give me a break. I mean, she not only did that three times, apparently yeah. plus during the shooting of Let It Be. Whenever she was given the microphone. <laughs> yeah, here, try this. But she, I mean, it was multiple moments where mm-hmm. she was doing that extremely annoying screaming but fast forward 10 years and she did a lot of that throughout her time with john i mean there's this iconic 
uh, moment where John Lennon finally gets to play with um, with uh, uh, Chuck Berry. Okay. And Yoko is in the corner on stage with them screaming into the Are microphone. Are you serious? Yeah. They're oh, playing, they're playing like Johnny Be Good. And, you know, oh, John no. Lennon, he loves this stuff, you oh, know? Oh, no. And yeah, she's, this is, this she's on a microphone doing her screams. Oh, no. And it's, and it's screaming gives screaming a good name. Like, yeah. her... Her wailing, and it's purposeful. She's supposed. To, she's an artist, so she's. But it's not like a Paul McCartney rock and roll scream. No, no, no. It's it's purposefully the most annoying. And, and and if you've never heard it before, people out there, just Google Yoko Ono screaming, and yeah. you know, with John or anyone. I mean, it is. It's something. Now, if I heard it on one song, like she, they had one song where she did. I'd be like, oh, it's kind of interesting, you know, because it is it is provocative. But she does it. All the time, yeah, yeah. it's like all she wants to do, and it's it's it, she's one of those people I think who she did it once like ten years prior to meeting John. She got some attention, and she got some attention, and she just keeps doing <laughs> oh, no. it. Yeah, you know what I mean. It's yes. just like that kid who just keeps saying the same <laughs> dumb joke, and, and no that, one's actually told them, "Hey, uh, it's not funny. Not good. It's not funny anymore. Yeah. Like it probably wasn't funny the first. It was funny for literally five seconds. We, we thought you were doing a bit in 1954. <laughs> it was funny for five seconds. Stop doing it. Yeah, you know. And and so yeah, there were <laughs> there were so many moments like that with Yoko. I was just like. But it is a different kind of problem. It's a okay. It's almost like it's almost like I feel a little bad, you know, I'm like, yeah, okay, someone needs to pull you aside. But it's definitely a different perspective than she was actively undermining right. everything. No, no, no. The Beatles there in fact, I would say well, so on one hand, I would say Yoko had absolutely nothing to do with them breaking up. On the other hand, um I think that Yoko had everything to do with them breaking up. But not because of her, but because of John. That, because, and we've talked about that. We did yeah. a whole deep dive on John. Yeah. That John was super abandoned, and we'll get into that later. Um, well, let's go into that now, actually. Let's just talk about John's psychology, because I think that's pretty important. So I, I'm going to do a little... Oh, and, and, sorry, and I'll say that uh, to echo what, you, what you're saying about that she has something to do with it, and maybe it's because of John. There was that very clear comment from Paul about the conversation they had right. with George, which... It seemed like a lot of the conflict was relating to Yoko. Right, exactly. So. Um, which is another pretty huge thing that I heard from the documentary that I'd, I'd, I'd never seen that clip before. Paul says, basically into the camera, as George and John haven't shown up, because it's sort of the, 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 the maybe the worst moment in yep. the Beatles' history is this moment. Paul's like, I so, and then there were two. And, yeah. and Ringo will probably leave me too, and then it'll yeah. just be me. And... Paul says in a in an ironic twist in 50, 50 years, years. <laughs> which is you know we're 52 years from, yeah. from in 50 years they're going to laugh and at, say the Beatles broke up cuz Yoko stood on an amp no because a woman sat on an amp she, he says Yoko yeah he oh, says okay cuz Yoko sat no sat, sat on an amp sat on an amp yeah and essentially saying she she came into the studio and sat down on John's amp and that broke us up and yeah. I think what he's referring to, and there's been other stories like this, and some of the super super fans might attest to the specifics of this, is that George was extremely bothered by Yoko's presence. Like yeah. like Paul wasn't enthusiastic, but he's more amiable. George was like, "What is she doing here?" And someone pointed out when he was playing "I Feel uh, I Me Mine," 
and John started waltzing with Yoko, sort of mocking it a bit. Uh-huh. I didn't catch it that way, but someone, I was watching another YouTube video, and someone was pointing that out. I was like, oh, if you already have predispositions of feelings against her, and then you're playing your brand new song, and John's kind of like not taking it that seriously, and then he's waltzing in your face with Yoko. Right. Uh, well, and then there's another moment where he where he brings... Maybe it was the first time he plays I Me Mine, actually. He's like, he's just him and his guitar, and the yeah. four Beatles are sitting in a little circle, standing in mm-hmm. a circle. We don't see Paul's face because he's facing away, but we see John as sort of askance, you know, 90 degrees to us. And you hear George playing it, and uh, John says something like, oh, it, it kind of sounds like something, and it's it was insulting. And George mm-hmm. picked up on it, and he's just like, well, I don't give a fuck if you like right, it or not. Right. I'll put it in my music. Right, right, right. Because he was something like, we do rock and roll, not waltz or something. Right. He's like, yeah, it sounds like <laughs> it sounds like something from, you know, which is so John to why, say. But it's, why would... Because the Beatles did all sorts of kind of music. Not so. only that, like there's other moments where John's so supportive, like, oh, we got to bring in George's song. We got to, you right. know, it seems right. like... Well, it almost yeah. seems like John has problems. So let's go yeah. into it. Yeah. So if this is from our deep dive. <laughs> And in a nutshell, John had a lot of early chaos, much more chaos than I thought. I had heard he had a rough time, but let's go into some of the details. And this is just some of the highlights. He's born into a family where the father basically was absent on a fishing ship frequently. And I think both his parents drank a lot. I'm guessing it was an unplanned pregnancy. I'm not quite sure. But anyway, the mom would, as he's from zero to four, he had a lot of bad experiences. Um, his mom would abandon him at home at the age of like two just or one, just leave him at home, go out, drink with her, you know, friends and stuff, come home with a new dude every single night, have sex with him. Yeah. And John would sometimes wake up in the middle of the night and realize he's alone. Cause she'd probably put him to bed and then leave. Oh, it's unfathomable. So he's like, you know, 18 months old. And he remembers this waking up in the house all by himself, screaming in terror. The neighbors hear him screaming. Oh, my God. The neighbors. He's screaming so loud. The neighbors hear him. They come over and take care of him until the mom comes home. Oh, my God. Um, he's sent to live with his uncle for a while. Uh, he comes back to the mom. The father kidnaps him because the father would come back from a ship and realize how terrible horrified. Julia was treating John. Oh that uh, And they had so much. And what a wonderful plan. I'll kidnap my son. Instead of like, well, maybe I should just stay home and try to figure out. So we're talking like crack addict parents level <laughs> of, you know what I mean? Seriously, like, yeah. And so he is, a father completely disappears at a certain point. Mother gives eventually John to his to her sister, Aunt Mimi, and, and the uncle. Um, and uh, so John's being raised by his aunt and uncle who were, you know, good enough aunt and uncle, but they weren't, like, enthusiastic, I think, about raising a kid. Mm -hmm. Plus, John had already been pretty much attachment disordered by the time he's four. Um, The mom, Julia, remarries soon after leaving John, has some kids, doesn't take John back. Yeah. Because the father doesn't want John. So John... Across town is his family. Is his mom living with other kids? Oof. Oof. 
<laughs> like well, like walking distance. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. Um, he grows up. He, you know, he's extremely troubled as a kid and a teenager. Half of what I say is meaningless. <laughs> yeah. Uh, he, you know, and he goes to art school. He starts playing music, and he meets Stuart Sutcliffe, best friend. Uh, there, you know, he respects him. He's a smart kid, you know. And then Stuart Sutcliffe dies, of course. Yeah. Then John turns to Paul. And now Paul is his number one, and they're having so much success together. And yeah. Paul, being a couple years younger, also having lost his mother when he was, you know, his mother died when he was a kid. But Paul's much more even keeled. He had a great family life in spite of the loss. Right. Yeah. And so when John would have his ups and downs, Paul would kind of roll with it. Yeah. And, but... And I mean, have you ever had this experience where someone they're so charismatic and everyone loves them, and all of a sudden they just shine a light on you? Just how great it can feel, you know? They're just suddenly it's just like it's all about. Have you ever been in a situation like that? Mm, that's a good question. I don't know. Well, by the fact that you can't think of it, I've been in that many many okay. times. Yeah, there there are people who they just seem like wherever they are, they're the coolest person in the room, and then when they when they shine a light on you, you just feel like, oh, my God, I don't want to give it up. And I think that's what Paul was going through, kind hmm. of. But also, Paul had a you know narcissistic streak, uh, so he could kind of compete. But, you know, and they even talk about this in the Get Back documentary. Paul's like, John, you've always been the leader. You know, yeah, I, I, was, I was... Such a shocking revelation did you find it shocking no i knew that already because i from you know in the early days no john, i knew that but i didn't know paul felt that way in 69 oh well paul was saying you were you were always the leader until yeah. recently you know right. what i mean but I, cause I always had this impression that because i knew obviously paul started the bid and and they all looked up to john where are we going boys you know to the tippy top johnny but whatever but i just topper thought most of the topper most of the proper most but what i've thought was that by the time the mid-60s rolled around, Paul started... Cause, you know, I, I early on had the misconception that John was the one coming up with all the wacky ideas. Then I learned that, no, actually, it's kind of Paul. Right. And so then I thought, oh, I see what happened. Paul became like the, the one calling the shots and blah, blah, blah. But, and but so John, then, I think, was the spiritual leader of right. the band. And so I was pleasantly surprised to hear in 69 Paul say... Like you've always been the leader, John. Right. Maybe only until recently. Like right. that was because you classic. can absolutely imagine. It's hard to see and get back, but given everything you know about the dynamics and John Lennon himself, if John stood up and said, "This is what we're going to do, lads," you could just see George and Ringo falling in the line. And in fact, not only do I agree with that, you can't. That is implicitly what happens at some point. Even though all he did was like buckle down and start playing, yeah. I think everyone else did follow along. Right. Because eventually when John... Because early in the in the first few days, first couple of weeks, John is kind of just there. Yeah. In fact, I, I he, wrote in my notes, I'm he's, like... He's like absent. What's up with John? Yeah, me too. He's completely quiet. And in the last part, John is there. Right. And that made a big difference. Right. Yeah. So then when John, you know, he marries Cynthia and has Julian, but was never... And was trying to attach to Cynthia, but had a lot of conflict, mm -hmm. violence, maybe. Yeah. Some people say domestic violence. Some people say not. I could absolutely imagine violence. Um, and he's searching for uh, attachment he's never had. You know, he's had yeah. a little bit with Stuart Sutcliffe, a little bit with Paul. 
but you know, there's only so much you can get from a best friend. You know, it, it uh, frequently most a lot of people they really want that full enmeshment with a companion. And, and I keep reminding myself, kids in their twenties, right? <laughs> yeah, they're not the most mature yeah. people on the planet. And then he meets Yoko and falls deeply, deeply in love. Right. And even under normal circumstances, Paul would become a distant second to that. But given how desperate John is for closeness for the first, and, and she's older, she is stable. I think she she really uh, gave him a lot of love, gave him a lot of attention, and was... Um, just a good match for him, apparently uh, enough that by the time we get to get back, you know, let it be documentary. Paul is just like non-existent in John's emotional world yeah. at this point, you know? Um, so, uh, yeah. And then of course we have the fair amount of drugs, you know, both John and Yoko were using heroin yeah. by now. And that's what I was thinking at the beginning of the sessions that, I mean, they didn't feel totally wasted or something. No, but. yeah, they didn't see. They didn't seem like they were nodding off, right? But uh, one of the nights, they actually refer to in the morning. They're like, "Oh, I had a rough night last night," mm-hmm. and Paul says, "You really want to be doing this in public right now?" Do you remember that? Oh, I, I did. I mean, I remember that moment, but I didn't understand it. Yeah. So, well, I watched this other YouTube video, kind of okay. breaking that down. So, there's this famous night where huh. John and Yoko late at night after using a lot of heroin are being interviewed and it's on camera and it's like a famous clip of the oh, two of them wow. like like clearly you know intoxicated to, yeah wow. and the next day it's and John even talks about it you know so <sighs> so there's a and, and wow. John you know used heroin uh I'm guessing I mean I think you might have even said this out of a self medication from his attachment disruption yeah. and, and co- every day he must have been in such pain pain yeah um so, uh, so yeah, so you have the fact that, and then you have to add on Brian Epstein dying. And that's devastating. Right. They refer to him as Mr. Epstein. Right. Which I, I was a little surprised, right? I thought they'd call him Brian. Yeah. And they're like, Mr. Mr. Epstein, since Well, he died. they even literally called him our father, you know, like, yeah. our, you know, our father. And figure. it's incredible to think just what that felt like to them because they were kids picked out of the street by this guy basically yeah out of the cavern so to speak um yeah devastating so take a guess how old brian epstein was when he died so you know he's died like 33 or something yeah 32 so he was just like five years older but that's a big deal (laughs) five or seven years older than and he he was clearly an older soul right more more (laughs) business-like yeah like there's a guy i worked with who was only about two years older than me he always felt like a decade older than right, right. That's definitely that case. So, if you don't know, Brian Epstein was the their manager for a long time and was a, a pretty was pretty instrumental in uh, their success. And he died of an. Uh, some people think suicide. Some people think accidental drug overdose. Either way, he dies in mid nineteen sixty seven, and. Uh, you can clearly see the vacuum of Brian Epstein. And, you know, I always thought that George Martin was more of a father figure. I wrote this in my notes as well. The other thing I was Because they make, they make fun of him a lot. They, there was that. Also, I was in shock of how little control he had at this point. Yeah. 
forget how they felt. I just thought, well, he's still the head at EMI, like the head. Not, he's not the head of EMI, but he's super high up now. Right. And he's the Beatles producer. And and he keeps coming into the group saying stuff, and they keep ignoring him. Yeah. Like, I think they didn't like, like, there was this thing like, oh, well, you would always say that. Like, Paul would, yeah, George, of course you would say that. And it's bizarre because early on, and certainly from all the reading and on that white book with all the descriptions of everything they did, like, George was the man and was the father figure in the music sense. Yeah. They absolutely listened to what he said. And with Brian Epstein, John and Brian were, like, really close. That's right. And so because the leader of the band was Jeez. very, was very you know, was shining the light on Brian Epstein, yeah. then the band followed what Brian Epstein did. And you just got to wonder if Epstein hadn't died. Uh, you know, I'm sure Magical Mystery Tour, the movie, never would have been made because that was a that was a fiasco. <laughs> this documentary <laughs> would have had some kind of yeah. a, a like a flow, uh, you yep, know, yep, some yep. kind of organization. They probably would have stayed together. The White Album wouldn't have had number nine on it. Do you know <laughs> I, what I mean? I will say one thing though. Um, as as we're talking about this, I still again keep coming back to, um, even with Brian not dying, even with maybe George Martin still having more of an active role, all these things. Um, how much can you expect from people? You know, yeah, a decade of the right. most life changing music of all time. Right. Well, before we go on to that, um, I just want to talk about Brian Epstein a little bit more because there were some things that were directly said. I think it was Paul or someone was saying, you know, we've been in the doldrums. You literally said, yeah, since Brian Epstein, we've been in the doldrums, yeah. and he and. I can't remember who said I think it's Paul. He says something like, we've always lacked discipline. And you can tell from this documentary how much they, particularly the non-Paul, or I guess yeah. the, particularly the, the John, honestly. it's Because George, I think, probably had discipline in the studio. I think Paul did too. But I think John, he's such a obnoxious disruptor well george might have had discipline but george didn't have the chops that paul had so right. when when paul is demanding better this and better that it frustrates george because like, i'm just i'm doing the best i can here well but the amount uh, so you know we've always lacked discipline it's just like wow you know because you hear outtakes from recordings even from 1964 you can hear him joking around a lot but they're more deferential to George Martin at the time, right. and of course, Brian Epstein. Well, and, 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 and to more specifically, that first album, and maybe the first three albums, I, he even calls it, I, actually, I was watching the Paul McCartney thing, with, uh, and, and he says, oh, you know, when the adult told us what to do, we had to listen. Right. He called them the adult. It, it very much was like, we are being paid by these people, we better listen to that guy. Right. Yeah. And he also says, Daddy's gone away, you know, which yeah. is Brian Epstein. So the vacuum that this left and then that, who do you fill with that spot? Yeah. I mean, George Martin would have been a good choice, but apparently they didn't want him. And plus, he's not a manager. He's just a music guy. And, and John, John was clearly motivated and, quote unquote, disciplined enough early on to get them to, like, go and play and go to Hamburg or whatever. Right. But at this point, he, his life is so different. He's not in a place well, where plus he can do that. There's a billion more things to keep track of. Yeah, like it's not just go to Hamburg and play. Right, you know, uh, post up at one. And stay club. up all night. <laughs> yeah, and 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 and, and take uh, those pet pills. Did you hear Ringo talk yep. about pet pills? Yep. So uh, he's asking Mao, like, "Hey, you got any pet pills?" <laughs> um, but anyway, uh, there's so many more things to keep track of, and so. Paul steps into the va and, and John is with Yoko all the time, and I'm guessing using heroin. 
and he and he was already kind of checked out anyway like the like um I'm only sleeping which was yeah. written in 1965 apparently like that he was already this because of his attachment injuries mm-hmm. I think depressed and would sleep a lot you yeah. know because of his depression so painful. and so Paul steps up and he's a he's a natural leader and he 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 right. knows what he's he's driven he you know, likes to, he clearly knows what he's doing with his. He just doesn't know how to get them to do it, right? Other than maybe Ringo's a soldier, he's always just like, "Yeah, what Ringo, do you want me to do, boss?" Right, Ringo. Yeah, that <laughs> was interesting. I never, I never knew how passive Ringo was until and, watching right. this. And I always knew he was a solid drummer, but man, yeah, what a TikTok! Like yeah. that guy. Yeah, oh, and it, a lot of the uh, beats. Paul would be like, do this. Yeah. And like a lot of the beats that I associate with Ringo's, and I'm sure many of the yeah, Ringo, yeah. but like, you know, the da 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 out of nowhere, and I sat down um, while watching it. I paused it because I wanted to analyze the melody because it's a pretty simple chord structure. Yeah. It's just it's just um, it's just A and D, I think. And so I wanted to break down the melody because I'm thinking I think there's something kind of weird about that melody, and it is. It's it's not it's not chordally congruent. Yeah, the, the well, the G there is is the seventh, the seventh of the A. But then he uh, anyway. You have to like yeah. play it on piano and then look at the melody, and it's just like it's not. It, it's one of those melodies that sounds beautiful, but is dissonant in all the right places, you know, and and bluesy and flows, and and the fact that he comes up with that, and then he's like, okay, do this, do that, you know. And he's and he, he right away, and you're just like, how does yeah. how I, does a human do that? Like the the amount of classic number one hits that comes out of his face. And you just got to wonder if John wasn't on heroin and oh, yeah. showed up like the, the, the stuff that they could have done during at this least time. three more albums of awesomeness. Yeah. Here's the deal. I wrote down three things about him. One just, I said, Paul is such a music savant. That was my, my comment. I was like, because it's not just that he can come up with these things. He is just musically like filled Everything he says sounds amazing. Even when he's freaking around, yeah. he sounds amazing. Every little noodly thing he plays sounds amazing. Every little thing he does on the piano sounds amazing. Yeah, and and because <laughs> the one thing, and I've heard this before because I've heard outtakes and and demo tapes from all of them. Paul's demo tapes sound good. Yeah, John and George's like typical human Are beings, raw ideas. Well, and their voices. Although yeah. you know, George and John have amazing voices. Yeah. yeah, but on their demo tapes, they sound like crap. Yeah. Yeah. You know, because they're because yeah. they're not kind of Paul. Just kind of you Paul, know, he. It's like he can't sing a bad note. Hey, that's what I'm saying. Like, wait, oh, by the way, just even more in general about the whole band, and I'll make this point later on. But the the, the TLDR on this is. They really work great together. Like yeah. even when they're screwing around on little old covers or whatever, it, and they don't even remember the parts, it still sounds so fun and amazing. You know? Yeah, yeah, and yeah. 100%. But 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 to narrow down on Paul, Paul just like everything he touches musically just like elevates. Yeah, and his voice can do no wrong. Right. He's like, like oh my god, that sounds beautiful. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah. And the fact that he's working on. 
you know, and we'll get to the full song list, in, you know, in a bit. But the that he's working on like ten of my favorite pieces of art oh, in the span of like one week. You know, when, he, like he the the things that he's developing in that week are like. 10 of my most important things in this world. Do you know what I mean? I mean, so that scene is amazing because he's sitting there noodling on the bass, actually, right? Yeah. And then... He's playing it like a guitar. He's playing a, He's playing an A. And then the little text comes on. This went on to become their next single. Yeah. And of course, you know, we know the song, but it, like, imagine you don't know. And you're like, wait, that? That thing he's just noodling around with? Yeah, and you can hear it slowly yeah. emerge, you know? And you're it's just so like, I know, I know where you're heading. And then when he's playing... Let it be on yeah. the piano, and everyone else is talking. And what what are we going to do about that thing? And when are we yeah. going to play the show? No one's paying attention. And he's writing my favorite song of all time yeah. from the Beatles. Yeah, it's ah, oh, it's so amazing. Yeah, and and yeah. Anyway, <laughs> um, we can geek out. Yeah, let's take, a, let's take a break. But just before I go to break, we go to break. Um, I cried at the end when they were working well together. Yeah, it, it was moving to me, and now I, I also the the arc of the documentary, there's so much tension that oh, you yeah. feel and you're just like, Oh, they're fine. You know, when they were on the roof and they're not joking around and they're not fighting and they're playing awesome music and you see people on the street just like, yeah. Oh, I think that's the Beatles. They're great. You know, I love them. And, and it, you know, they're happy and it, it's like, and, and, you, and you know, this is the last time they're ever going to perform on in front of anyone bef- again. And and they're so good. Keep in mind, they've only had these songs for a few days. Yeah. Practice them a few days. They're so good that the recordings we know and love from those albums, they're on a many rough. of them are from that freaking roof. Yeah. Live. Yeah. Sure. They had multiple takes. It, it's amazing. Yeah. Um. By the way, I watched this whole thing all eight hours. With my 10-year-old daughter. Yeah? And she sat through all of it. Really? Yes. Now, so that was what I was thinking. Because I was, I was thinking, is, well, well, one, I think a kid watching, it'd be a little different. But I was thinking a non-fan. Is she a fan? Well, only because I am. And, and I'll say this. I did write a note. Uh, I said, who is the audience for this right. documentary? It's you and me. Because even, <laughs> even people who are fans, because I'll tell you, it was too long. It was for way everyone, too long. For 99% of the population on Earth, it, it was too long. Yeah. Well, no, no. Even, I would say 99.9 because <laughs> you and I are in the top 1% yeah, of people. But I, I'm the only one. You and I are like, yeah, I, I'll sit through all of this. <laughs> because the, the, second and, the second part and the third part, there were so many parts of that where I was like, I don't think we need to watch them do another random take. You know what I mean? Like... It's so. It's made for scholars. And I, I I wrote down who is the audience for this. How many of us are there? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> but but actually, my daughter. Now, will, was she paying one hundred percent attention the whole time? No, she doodled. She you know. But she sat through all eight hours and was mostly fascinated, and that was amazing. Yeah, that's amazing. Um, all right, let's take a break. Get back more nerding out. What do you say, Bruno? Let's do it. Hey, Deserving Listeners, as you all know, I am constantly recommending that people go to therapy. We all need therapy from time to time. Well, one of the options available that is definitely worth checking out is BetterHelp. If you're looking for a therapist, I would give it a try by going to betterhelp.com slash Kirk. Make sure you use the promo code Kirk because you get 10% off your first month. 
and it really helps us out. As you watch these videos, I know many of you have been motivated to find your own therapist, which is great because you deserve it. And I know also that it can be hard to find a good fit, find the right one for you. Well, one of the options available in terms of your shopping is to go to betterhelp.com Kirk. I've been told you can start communicating with your therapist in under 24 hours. You can message your counselor at any time. Plus, you can schedule weekly video or phone sessions. I've also been told that it's often less expensive than in-person therapy. And you should know that this service is available to clients worldwide. So go to betterhelp.com Kirk to get 10% off your first month today. All right, we're back from the break. It's time to do another OPP, Old Patron Praise. OPP. So these people became patrons of the podcast in April of 2019. (laughs) And (laughs) have uh, stayed patrons ever since then. That's the key. It's like, it's one thing to become a patron. It's another thing to stay a patron through thick and thin through Beatles episodes and all the other ones. <laughs> we got Brian from Indiana. Mm. We got Jeff from Santa Barbara. Ooh. We got Claire from San Francisco. Nice. We got Alexandra from Indiana, Pennsylvania. Indiana, Pennsylvania. Wait, what? There's a <laughs> there's, there's a, an Indiana, Pennsylvania. Why confusing me? Yeah. <laughs> Angel from New South Wales, Australia. Wow. Who is an upper tier patron. We got Oli from God Knows Where. We got Chris from God Knows Where. We have Iren Denisa from Dublin, Ireland. Mm. Iren Denisa, maybe? We got Gianluzzi from St. Gallen CH. Is that, you think that's Czechoslovakia? Wait, Could is, be. is Czech Republic, I mean? Czech Republic. Country. Yeah. Let's go Czech Republic. Code. CH is Switzerland. Oh, Wait, we did this last time. Yeah. Well, how we come, fell for it how again. How do we? Why is it? Are we going to do this every time? CH is Switzerland, oh, all right? Okay. Okay. All right. I'm, I'm <laughs> never going to remember that because it's like, okay. And then we got Claire from God Knows Where, Luke from God Knows Where, uh, Nia Ann from New South Wales, Australia. And Another Dar- one. Okay. Darlene from God Knows Where. Thank you all for becoming a patron and staying a patron Woo! through thick and thin. Um, I am going to take a little second to organize my sitch here so that I don't repeat those names in the future. Okay, so, um, all right, let's talk about what we liked about the documentary that we haven't been, been I'm going to go through my my outline here. Let's, sure. let's try to follow it. I mean, I've been all over the place. <laughs> but, um, so what do you like? What are some general things you liked about the... About oh, man, there's so many moments. So, uh, in the... F- I'll just go touch the three episodes separately. The first episode, the the, the top things that I, I wrote were um, the Curb Your Enthusiasm episode between Paul and George. And what I mean, if you've never watched Curb Your Enthusiasm, it's full of awkward, awkward moments. So the whole time when Paul and George are passive aggressively, you know, going back and forth, and Paul's like, I just think you know maybe you could do this play that. and George's like well I just don't think that's necessary you know like and they're not, neither of them is getting like angry or loud and maybe it's because they know they're being filmed but but you could cut the tension with a freaking like well so a side note on that <laughs> is I was wondering if this is a British thing because I, I was like wait George is leaving what happened well because he stands up and he's like oh where are you going oh I'm leaving the band yeah and, and you know and, and I'm thinking Wait, and then I was like, "Oh, I bet you." As a subtext to all the polite talking, 
and and debating was seething anger yeah and frustration yeah and you could tell i mean some of it was you know some of it was bordering on the rude but just short of it you know and so that was very interesting it was also a little painful to watch because it brought back a lot of memories of my own experience right well we'll get to that in a second (laughs) but that was that was very interesting the um, the other thing was uh the part about the cord (laughs) there's a point where, where they're they're trying to do um uh you know, Paul is arguing like, oh, that, there's a chord. That chord's too plain. And then George is like, there's nothing wrong with this chord. This chord is used by everyone. Oh, right. <laughs> you know what chord it was? No, it was like whatever normal no, no. seventh chord or something. Well, it's it's the chord that Jimi Hendrix uses in, uh, you know. Bum, bum, oh, bum. okay, okay, okay. Yeah, it's yeah. that chord. But Paul was being a little yeah. pedantic about it. And George's like, Wait, it's so fine. these are moments that you liked about it? Yeah. Oh, okay. Because it's like... Well, because it's re- they're real moments, and as a music geek, I'm like geeking out on that, you know. Yeah. Um, and then the other thing was that moment when George leaves. Yeah. Like, I was so shocked. I, I'm like, what just happened? He's because at first you think he's like it's a like a misunderstanding. Well, we'll get saying. into that because there's all yeah, there's but some it, details. it was like such a powerful moment. Oh, okay. And then, um, and then the the other things for me are the as I mentioned. Uh, when they're talking, oh, I didn't mention this, but when Peter Sellers shows up, yeah, I was like, a- another curb your enthusiasm moment. He sits down, and you're expecting Peter Sellers, this comedian, to be like joining the conversation, maybe saying some witty things. Instead, he's like, uh, "What's going on?" Because John is just saying random stream of consciousness things, and Paul's just kind of half going along. And Peter Sellers contributes nothing, gets weirded out, stands up, and says, "Bye." Mm-hmm. It's so <laughs> awkward. And I love Kirby enthusiasm, so hence I love that. Um, and then the other part is, uh, I got really jealous as, as I was watching the second episode of how much their whole life revolves around music. Like they wake up, they go, they play all day long. Then they go home and they write. And they write. And I'm like, oh my God, that's amazing. Yeah. You know? Um, so watching that was a. I also really enjoyed watching Ringo because even though he settled very little, I was like, man, he's such a rock. Yeah. He's always there. Yeah. He's always on beat. He's always ready to go. Um, and then the last couple things here. Uh, the. <laughs> George's boots. Did you notice his boots? They're yeah. like these psychedelic, crazy pink, purple, oh. fluffy boots he's wearing. Well, I remember the like the moccasin boots that he was wearing. Oh, these were like I think in the second episode and third episode there were these like just outrageous yeah, their outfits. Boots. You know, because of course we all know their outfits for the roof concert, right. which are just iconic. iconic. But it's kind. Of, I, I kept. As they were gearing up to that concert, I was, you know, there are all these different outfits that they showed up every day, and there were kind of variations, like the coat that John wore on the roof, he wears a couple times, the and the jacket that Ringo shows up with on yeah, that, that day. Yeah, that red jacket. It's like, where did that come from? So cool. And... Uh, and then Glenn Johns walks into the studio wearing a fluffy thing yeah. with the big glasses. Right, very kind of David Bowie-ish uh, in yeah. my mind. Anyway, yeah. Um, I also love the moment when Michael and Glenn go up to Paul and suggest that they play in the roof. Yeah. I didn't know that's how that came about, right? Yeah, that was amazing. <laughs> and you just see Paul like, yes. Oh, yeah. 
Yeah. That's perfect. Because it's, it's his way out, right? And he was crying before that. He was right. like upset. He's like right. such in the dumps. He's like, it's, it's this whole broken. thing is falling the apart. The band's falling apart. These recordings sound like crap. No, no one wants to play <laughs> a show. You know, you can just see how he evolved. Because in the beginning, he's like, let's do this. Let's do that. Let's right. do that. And then, and then they broke him. <laughs> well, and then, yeah. And there was this constant pushback. Yeah. Um, and then... And some of the pushback was justified, which we'll get to in a bit as well. But then eventually he's just like so broken. He's just like, yeah. And then I think they thought, oh, no, the one person that is sort of driving this boat is like taking his hands off the wheels. We have to go up to him and say, like, no, how about we try this? <laughs> and it's his face lights up and you're like, because you can see the wheels turning. Oh, that's my way out here. Yeah. Yes. Um, John trying to play the bass and I felt so bad for him because he didn't really know the song and he's just go boom 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 and so then you see George Martin like babysitting him like remember this I when remember he's, that he's playing bass during um, Let It Be or maybe it was The Long and Winding Road yeah maybe it was The Long and Winding Road and um, oh and that was amazing seeing them coming up with all the Abbey Road tracks right that was so fun to watch uh, I learned after this that they started recording Abbey Road Three weeks after the end of this documentary. Yeah. The, what? Yeah. Okay. And then uh, lastly, this is so ironic. They basically made two albums in three months. Yeah. it's um, Well, which was par for their course, I guess. Paul says at one point, and no one can produce the Beatles. And it's so ironic because sitting right behind him is George <laughs> Martin. Yeah. <laughs> Anyways, I have a ton more, but those are some of my... my da 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 yeah, for me, I liked seeing how they created uh, and also just how minimal their equipment was. They're, they just have like Fender Twin Amps and yeah. a Telecaster and... Fender Bassman for the bass. Yeah, and the, the drum setup is, you know, classic Ringo, just, you know, just a kind of... The sort of <laughs> drum set that you'd buy like a high schooler, you know what I and mean? And he places Hoffner because it's lighter. Right. That was a <laughs> that was a detail that I was like, oh, because I always thought right. he had that... The Rickenbacker. ...to like bring back... Oh, right, right. I thought he wore that on the Rooftop co- concert because he it's was trying to like bring them back to basics he was yeah. trying to like remind the band of like where they came from but it sounds but he just likes it because it's because because <laughs> you know some bases are heavy oh i know <laughs> i know yeah. i have a six string or five string right and that thing remember when we were playing electric company yeah and i almost knocked mitch unconscious with that thing. <laughs> yeah. i also yeah. liked how it the how peter jackson and the team made because uh, i know what they were working with Mm-hmm. In terms of the source material, and and I was like, how are they going to piece together a cohesive story <laughs> here? You know, and yeah. and there were several uh, beats, uh, you know, little story nuggets that they told that I was like, oh, they're piecing together like five different bits here, and and staying true to the story. But yeah. but if you saw what they were working with, you'd be like, oh, they took uh, a look, uh, uh, you know. Paul turning his head from five minutes later and put it there because it makes sense to put it there. You know, I just, cause, cause before I watch this, I'm like, how are they going to make this into an interesting, <laughs> especially the stuff in tweaking them. I found that's why I loved the first one. I loved tweaking them and I loved the rooftop concert bit. All the stuff in the, you know, when they're in the basement, I was, it was way too long for me. The second but, episode is what you're saying was, was long. And the fir- and the beginning of the third. Yeah. I, I, I I totally agree. I found it fascinating for 
the conflict and the struggle of it, as well as all the but it could have been conditions. No, I hear you. I hear like twenty five percent as a geek and you know a recording musician. So while you were watching number two, was there ever a point where you're like, okay, get on with it? No, but I I totally see why. I was because the other part of is for me. This album, the songs that they recorded are not some of my favorite songs. You know, like I can't, other than Let It Be, which is a great song, and I've heard it, you know, God knows how many times. Uh, all and, and Across the Universe, which was barely, you know, performed by them on this, if at all, honestly. Um, a lot of these songs, I'm just like, yeah, I don't need them working on Don't Let Me Down again. You know what I mean? You know what's funny about that? I, I did write down this comment that um, as I was listening to this, See, I take a lot of those songs for granted. I, I sort of agree with you. It's not my favorite album, but some of, some of my favorite songs are on it. But uh, but I actually realized the sound of these songs was very stylistically different. Yeah. Yeah, right. Because it's, you know, obviously you have Magical Mystery Tour, which is very much like, you know, uh, Sgt. Pepper, Psychedelia stuff. And then you have White Album, which is kind of, well, obviously they're all over the place on that album. Right, but, but it's this much, one sounds like almost like, like a different band, almost like a band at Woodstock yeah. entering the seventies. Right, and there was something impressive about it because I'm like, I mean, these are the same guys that just like five years ago were doing like really poppy stuff. Yeah, and now they're doing even jazzier yeah. sounding. Right, stuff. well, it sounds yeah, it sounds mature. Yeah, or, yeah, for now, sure. I can understand why you know it would. It, Different people might not like, but I did have that appreciation. And then some of the songs that I usually wouldn't have appreciated, I was even like, "Huh, that's interesting," you know? Right? Yeah, yeah. I, I have I have a new appreciation yeah. for those songs, but not anyway. So um, I also like how they uh, prior, you know, they did a little intro of a very quick primer on the Beatles' history up until that point, and. I liked how, and I never knew this, that the decision to do Let It Be, the film, was based on their, partly on their experience, you know, not only them trying to avoid playing live shows, but also um, their experience recording Hey Hey Yude, as you say. Hey Yude. Um, in that, because it was just before that. Yeah. It was just like yeah. months before Five that. months before. <laughs> yeah, and so they recorded Hey Jude, Hey, thinking that they wanted to make a, a, a you know a live oh, performance. I, sorry, I know why I because I got confused because uh, the name of the song it was supposed to be Julian, right? Yeah, and well, it's supposed some, to be Jules. Jules, but it's it's about Julian. Yeah, but he but the original lyric was "Hey Jules." Yeah, and for some reason I interpret that as Yule. <laughs> But it doesn't make any sense. Sorry. Good story. Yeah. So <laughs> I'll um, tell it again. <laughs> uh, so the uh, they're you know they're recording Hey Jude as a live performance that's being filmed, and they're going to put that out instead of going out on the road. And they liked how and they recorded similar to All You Need Is Love uh, part of the tracks live, and then they use some overdubs to kind of. And they're like, what if we did actually all of it? All of it live. How how like honest, fourteen songs. <laughs> how like authentic that would be. Yeah. And and I think they really, particularly Paul, loved having an audience. You know, yeah. like he wants like fans yeah, yeah. <laughs> there in front of him. Paul loves fans. Yeah, yeah. You know, he loves to be on stage. I mean, he's 
80 uh, well he's almost he's almost 80 years well he'll be 80 the next year i think or in a couple years and he still loves playing live and he he's going on all these radio shows like he he clearly loves he does yeah the, <laughs> the limelight yeah and so he's doing hey jude and he's just like wow this is for one song imagine if we did this for 14 songs and so it i like that kind of like oh okay i could you know seeing how each step of the way informs the next step which is interesting because when i was watching this i noticed how john is always performing but he's performing for everyone indiscriminately right he's just always on <laughs> yeah well except when he was quiet which i have to but, say you know, like but. i would on that on that topic <laughs> i would get so tired of that it's it's like some of it was hilarious yeah, yeah. but 90% of it, I'd be like, John, will you just calm the fuck down? I'm sure I, I'm mostly appreciating it because it's John Lennon, but I, I, I'm, I'm seeing how you're seeing it, too. Like, okay, so let's go on this jag for a second because we've been in bands yeah. with each other and yeah. with other people. Yeah. And as usually the leaders of these bands, we, you and I, when we were in a band together, we led together. Yeah. And uh, there's always this thing that happens in practices particularly where people start joking around or they start right. just jamming on something and sometimes that can be fun and other times right. it's a total waste of time particularly like you know as you get older you, you only have like one night a week that you could really practice right, right. you're probably paying for a practice space and you don't have enough money for that and you got a show coming up and it's just like hey let's get our shit together and Obviously, I loved joking around, and you know, I, I was never in a band that wasn't with my good friends. I was always in bands with good friends of mine. So obviously, joking around was a part of it. But I've never been in a band that joked around as much as the Beatles did. They joked around more than they worked. Now, totally true. At the same Which time, we're also talking about a, the absolute crap out of me, right? But we're also talking about sixty hours of footage. You've and I've never been in a band where we played that much all the time. You yeah. know what I mean? So you're saying that you think it was a minority that they No, I don't know. I'm just saying that I take it with a grain of salt because it's an but even edited that movie. Much, even if <laughs> even if it's you know, what I'm seeing is five percent blown up. Well, imagine the, you and I were playing music eight hours a day for three weeks straight. I would not be joking that much. I'd be like <laughs> let's get our Maybe shit together, not. people. And and they were on a deadline. They also had a different background than us. Like, it's amazing how many songs they had in their head. But, you know, they, I don't think it was, I don't think it's a good album because they didn't work hard enough. Yeah, they didn't focus, that's for sure. And, and imagine if they had, if they, yeah. if they had focused or given themselves another month. Well, it's honestly amazing. Look, there's obviously a lot of footage they didn't show us of them running through the songs really close to perfectly before the rooftop performance. Yeah. Because otherwise it's completely unbelievable that you're freaking around the whole time and then you go up on this roof and you're perfect. <laughs> well, I think part of it, and I'm not sure about that. But, because, but uh, look, because I'm not Paul, disagreeing Paul, with you. Because Paul at some point says something like, look, if the if we're in front of people and yeah, the cameras are on, the it'll yeah. it, people will finally, pl you know, and he even points at John, yeah. particularly him. He yeah. won't, he won't, essentially what I think Paul was saying is, if there's an audience, John will stop fucking around all the well, time. Well, and they have some sort of weird power, and I think it's from the Hamburg time that they put in, because they are able to sit there. You know, you remember, if we practice the songs differently each time, we wouldn't get them down, right? Like, no. Because you have to have that part over and over and over and over and yeah. over. I don't have good memory like that. 
these guys are noodling around. Sometimes they're playing it this way. Sometimes they're playing. Then they go up on the roof and it's like, oh yeah, that's the song I know. And it's, it, and it's not, and if you're not a musician, you might not appreciate these little things. You know how it's like, we'll do a harmony and it's good. But when you listen to it, you're like, oh, you really, that, that part didn't work. Well, yeah. They I mean, their harmonies, their, their savant, all three of them. Yeah. George particularly, because he's usually singing the middle, which is yeah. always the hardest. All three of them are <laughs> musical harmony geniuses. Right. And, and they have different timbres, but blend perfectly. And and I understand. So early on, uh, George Martin would come up with their parts. But it's not simple to hear what you're supposed to sing and sing it along with the others perfectly. Yeah, no. That's super hard. J- Paul literally says... To, to George one time, he's just like, yeah, let's do a three-part and, you know, let's, let's keep it tight. And that's yeah. all he says. Yeah, and yeah. then, boom, they got it. Yeah. So, anyways, I'm saying, I agree with you. There was a lot of tomfoolery. And would, there's a lot of footage If you had a band member like that, like that, no matter how good they were, <laughs> would they not drive you crazy? Yeah, of course. At some, well, in fact, I've had situations like that where, where um, someone, I won't name on the podcast, but you know well, because you've also played with them. Um there were times where I'm like, okay, let, let's stop. Like, let's, you know. Yeah, I feel like that was more prevalent when I was 19. Yeah. Um, past, I don't know, 25. I never had another band member who was like that. Yeah, yeah. I, I th- maybe I lucked out or something, but I've I, always been with people that, like, took it seriously. You yeah. Know? And joking around, for sure. But, like... We're here to do a job. Absolutely. You know? Yeah, no, but, and then John, what's funny is a lot of the little quips we love from the records were of him screwing around before right. and after and during the song. Which, there were abundant things they yeah. could have pulled from. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, he was constant. <laughs> it was almost like he couldn't stop. And I think Paul would do it too to enter John's world. Like, I, it made me think like Paul wouldn't be doing it. If it weren't for John, you know, I think Paul felt like he had to to keep John entertained or something. Well, and I'll add that some of their co-writing was, in fact, in that style, right? Like, they would kind of riff off of each other. John would, like, do a counterpoint to something Paul was saying. Yeah. And it was somewhat, there was a level of goofier playfulness to it. You know? Yeah. Like, sometimes they would play and go, like, oh, maybe that's good. That they and then it. John's sitting there in the back going, like, and she never caught him. Over and over and over. But yeah. then at some point, like, oh, what if we actually, you know? Yeah. 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 But so I, I had no idea at how annoying John was. <laughs> like, I mean, I would have, I would have been like, John, just can we, let's just take an hour. You can let out all your jollies. And then can we just get to work, please? And, and you could see why this would have annoyed George in particular. Because so Ringo again, Ringo is kind of in a weird spot because he knows he's not like, the anywhere near the main songwriter he's written a couple of things but mostly it's everyone else but he has an important role to play and he plays it well so he's just sitting there not rocking the boat being tight always on ready to go yeah so he doesn't at least in this documentary have much of an opinion about what's annoying him or not annoying him yeah it's almost like he's not and i a little side note on that i think other Beatles have said that other times that for Ringo he was always the new guy because he, yeah yeah he entered the band late and that psychology would have stayed there of course right. and you know and maybe again we were only seeing the edited version but it's eight hours worth Paul even when he's telling Ringo ideas of what to play on the drums it felt like this they've done this so many times this wasn't like a new thing for them right so Ringo never it never seemed to me like Ringo was like stop telling me what to do right 
But Georgia started to feel different because it was not that Paul was saying, hey, what if you played this? It was more like, paraphrasing, like, you're not playing right. And George going like, this is how I play. And well, okay, John let, goofing let, out well, I, all let over me, the place. Let me follow my outline because I want to <laughs> yeah, get yeah. to that for sure. So I loved hearing them also noodle with various songs that we were yeah. talking about. And I just want to name like the songs that, and maybe there were more, but Across the Universe is one of my favorite songs of all time. We hear Another Day, Paul messing around with that. Eventually he releases that on his own. We hear Don't Let Me Down, of course, Get Back. Golden Slumbers goes on Abbey Road. Her Majesty goes on Abbey Road. I Want You goes on Abbey Road. I Me Mine. I've Got a Feeling. We hear On the Road to Marrakesh, which becomes Jealous, <laughs> Jealous Guy yeah. by John Lennon. Yeah. Um, on the Road to Marrakesh. <laughs> you know what I mean? Yep. Um, and it's so funny. I'm so glad he changed those oh, words. I know. I know. Like, because the melody was always beautiful. But the, he, he didn't the have original it. lyrics were so dumb. Yeah. He didn't obviously have the music down yet, but... You could already see it, but the lyrics were, yeah. Yeah. Uh, Let It Be, Long Winding Road, Octopus's Garden, which which goes on. And that's like super cute moment where Ringo's sitting there and George showing is, them, and George is helping him out, right. and like, what if you do this to resolve it? Well, and, and I feel like George should get a writing credit on that song because yeah. uh, he writes like half of the verse. Yeah. But I also saw that I, it seemed like they had this kind of general understanding that because like other people were throwing out lyrics and things, and it's like... Yeah. I, look, if I were Paul and someone's like, oh, I should get a writing credit, I'm like, I'm Paul freaking McCartney. Back the fuck up. Yeah. If I, I'm not going to use your word now. In fact, I'll never use your word. <laughs> but if I am George and Ringo's writing a song, I'm not going to try to take his credit because Ringo only wrote right, 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 a couple right. yeah, yeah, yeah. But uh, yeah. <laughs> uh, Oh Darling, which is from Abbey Road, Old Branchu, which became a single. Sitting in the backseat of my car is arguably top three Paul McCartney songs. Oh, really? Including Beatles songs, wow. maybe. Sitting in the backseat of my car. So you must have been in, thrilled to hear that. To, yeah. I didn't, and I'd heard that, I'd heard that he started working on it back then, but I'd never, but it was, you know, pretty close, at least the chorus. Yeah, I, and by the way, this is a, <laughs> a, a song that no one ever hears, but it's, it's a, cla- it's this classic Paul McCartney song in the same vein as Hey Jude and Let It Be and Long and Riding Rodeo, so a piano song. And and it has these movements to it. Highly recommend sitting in the backseat of your car. And it's actually pretty interesting lyrics, too. It's very evocative. I, as you and I both know, uh, it makes sense that a lot of these songs would have already been around. Because, uh, you know, you've written songs years and years ago that all of a sudden you're like, okay, now I'm going to play this with the band. Or, right. And their albums they recorded, their first couple albums happened only like a couple of years later. Right. One year yeah, later yeah. Something. <laughs> uh, something by yeah. George, uh, Why My, well, he already recorded Why My Guitar. Teddy Boy, a Paul song, Two of Us, obviously. Um, and there were other songs, but um, anyway. Just, was, by the way, it was fascinating when George was discussing Eric Clapton. Yeah. He was saying, look, Eric can just, look, first of all, there's only one guitarist in his band. And he's got this ability. He can just like go on this crazy thing and then resolve it. Yeah. I can't do that. That's hard. Yeah. <laughs> Right. Well, we'll get into some of George's personality <laughs> in a second, too. But some dislikes is um, some of the intro historical stuff was out of order, which bothered me. Did you notice that? I didn't I didn't catch it, no. Uh, Paul said, you know, way too many times. You know. Yeah. Uh, Maxwell Silver Hammer, I ha, hate that song. <laughs> and if, With if, you the know, anvil, clink, clink. It's, you know... I've learned to hate it even more as time has gone. I've never liked it, but 
one of the things that I find that when I talk to younger people today, because I feel like people our age and older, when you say Beatles are your favorite band, they're like, oh, okay. Because people our age and older have enough understanding of the band and their Mm -hmm. importance or something and heard it, heard the Beatles growing up that they're like, oh, I could see that. I think there are some, now, of course, there are some young people. There was like a high school student I had as a client that was like fully into the Beatles. So it's not like, yeah, yeah. It's not like young people aren't into the Beatles, but it's, of course, is if there are young people today, even people younger than like 40. Yeah. Who basically have almost no understanding of who the Beatles are. They, they think of it as a kiddie band or they, they're just like not aware of it. Yeah. Like when. Paul McCartney and Kanye worked together. People were like, "Yeah, I remember who's that, that guy? Who is that guy? Yeah, like, why would he be yeah. working with this old white guy?" Yeah, yeah. And and so, which I get, it's totally fine. But um, one of the things that happens is, as you said, if you have very little understanding of the Beatles, sometimes your only exposure is like Yellow Submarine or Maxwell Silver Hammer or B- B- Bungalow Bill, right? Or or <laughs> Octopus's One, Garden. Two, buckle my shoe. <laughs> yeah, and you're like. Oh, the Beatles are a Kids are band. a kid band, and why would you possibly like? They're like the the what's the the Waggles or who? What was the <laughs> what's the band? Is that the Thirty Rock band? Anyway, it's a kid band, and so that's why I hate Fraggle Rock, or something. Uh, Maxwell Silver Hammer, and other songs like that by the Beatles even more because it misrepresents them. If if Paul had just had different lyrics, it's such a stupid lyrical song. I will come out of the closet and say that I I don't love it, but I like it. Ugh. And I can understand why you hate it. It's a great. Um, I mean, it's it's not, it's, it's passable chords and yeah. and and melody. It's certainly well produced because it's on Abbey Road. But imagine if it was about like I don't know anything else. Well, I'll tell you why I like it though. It's about a psychopath, and you know I like American Psycho, <laughs> but it, right, which you know I'll grant. But yeah. but the delivery is the way it's purposeful. It's purposely written to please his his new stepdaughter, his adoptive daughter, Heather McCartney, yeah. who I understand, but. Yeah. Don't put it on a Beatles album. You're saying it's like when Eddie Murphy does a kitty movie because he's got kids. Yeah, it's that kind of thing. Yeah. But it's it's the Beatles. You know I, what I, mean? I can see that, yeah. yeah. Okay, so uh, personality. We already went into John, but Paul, we already talked about him trying to lead, which I think he did badly, by the way. Well, he, yeah. I mean, what I, what I think you got right is he had vision. He had ideas. However... He didn't have a crystal clear vision, right? No, he, no, no. <laughs> they all were full, very right. floppy. Right, let's right. let's take a a boat and put a bunch of yeah. British people on a boat for two weeks to Libya. Like I think Paul would have been more successful if up front he would have said something along the lines of like, "Hey lads, you know, with with Mr. Epstein, right. we, we used to do this. How about we try to recapture this aspect of it in this way? Yes, here's a proposal." Instead, it was like, oh, we should do this grandiose thing and like do this and this and we'll get a camera crew. And then before it probably everyone had processed it, camera crews are there right. and they're in the middle of it. <laughs> right, exactly. Yeah. Like, I did not get the impression that at any point did anyone, and I guess Paul should have because he was stepping forward as the leader, sit down individually with yeah. each person and be like, okay, George, we got to work some shit out here because, right. uh, you know, uh, how are we going to work together? I want, you know, I, I wish that Paul would have said, George, I need you. Yeah. yeah. Like, I don't want to be without you. Yeah. I want to work with you. I'm willing to compromise. 
I have all these things I want to do. Um, I get the impression that you don't want to do them. Let's let's meet in the middle somewhere. Is that okay? You yeah, know, yeah, like yeah. I feel like there was none Wait, of that. Which they obviously somehow arrived at, probably less eloquently than you just put it. But clearly, George came back at some point. But but I don't think so. Right. I think it was because they broke up literally just three months later. You know what I mean? I don't. Yeah, yeah, I think yeah. it the, was clearly not a healing. <laughs> but this documentary really. Um, elucidates how horrible of communicators they were. Yeah, I, know. I mean that the conversation, so passive aggression. Yeah, the community that, oh. that 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 secretly, um, unethically recorded, recorded uh, yeah. between Paul and John as they're talking about George. I was like, you two do not know how to communicate. Like they yeah. they're not they're like all over the place. They're not like, hey, they're not leveling with each other. Like right. hey, like if Paul would have been like John. I love the Beatles. I'll go out on my own if I if I have to, but I'd rather stick it out. We have so much good yeah. in what we can do, and the and the public really likes us, and so we can ride that wave for a long time. How can we work together here? Like, what do right. we got to do? You know, it was none of that. It was all just kind of like random statements counterpointing each other and never agreeing and yeah, nothing yeah, yeah. Is they were talking around each other and john kind of wanted it both ways because in, in the one breath he would say well i want to play i want to do the live show and the next minute he'd be representing george's concerns which is fine it's just that i, I didn't feel like in the end i was like kind of unsure where john stood you know yeah and and i think paul didn't know how to corral it all he just didn't he didn't have those skills at that yeah, point and Maybe, his ideas yeah. were stupid like, he didn't have, they, yeah. they, so that's another thing I'll say is like yeah. the John stuff annoyed me. I was like, if I had a band member, man, band yeah. member like John, I'd be like, I don't care how talented he is. Yeah. I can't work with someone like that. But I've worked with people like the Paul. You're kind of like Paul. And well, so I wrote down. I said I could really relate to Paul. Yeah, because you're a dreamer, and and you're not as bad as this. But and plus, in the back in the day when we would do band stuff together. Yep. We didn't have unlimited resources like these guys did. You know what I mean? They they could do Absolutely. whatever they wanted, and whole teams of people would play it out. But back in the day, I remember you would be like, what if we did this and we yeah. could do that? Like, I'll never forget there was this one time. <laughs> I'll never forget this. It's not even that big of a deal, but we were shooting. We were planning on shooting a video for one of our songs, right? Mm -hmm. And I was in charge. So this is, you know, before everybody had a video camera in their an HD video camera in their pocket. You know, this is back when I probably had the only video camera of anyone you knew, you right. know what I mean? And, and I had the only video editing software, you know, this is like, would have been like 2006 or five or yeah. something. And, and so I'm, you know, I'm going, let's do a video. And you're like, yeah, let's do a music video. And I'm like, we're like brainstorming. And you're like, Oh, 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 no, 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 no. I totally know what we're going to do. And I'm like, oh, okay, cool. He's got an idea. We're going to go to Pike Place Market. We're going to stand right in the middle of the intersection of Pike and First, you know, that where that all those bricks are. And we're going to we're going to like be performing there, and then there's going to be a camera that will be zoomed in on my face. And then as we're performing, the camera is going to recede into the sky and you're going to see, you know, an all one shot and you're going to see like Pike place market. And then you're going to see the Puget sound. You're telling that to me. How are we supposed to do that? Exactly. This is before drone technology, but I don't understand how I thought that that could even work. That was what it was like working with you. Well, okay. I don't remember <laughs> that story, 
I I wrote down the following. I said, um, <laughs> I said Paul is longing for ske- for structure and a schedule. John is stream of consciousness, sort of passive aggressive. And then I said, um, I, I I basically said Paul is. I can relate to Paul because Paul is overthinking things. Yeah, and I said I said overthinking. Yeah, and and I used to do that all the time. And so like with band before our band. Um, we had our set down and all these things. And I was like, oh, we need all this stage stuff. And so I bought all these stage lights and stage effects. And, yeah. and, and I had this know. vision. And, but it was so complicated. And I would spend so much of my time setting it up at when we were going to go play shows. Yeah. I was always stressed. And I had to set up all the things. And to be clear, so people understand, you were a simple rock trio. Yeah, a simple rock trio. And, and yeah. no one brings their own lights. And I printed out a huge banner with our name, all these things, right? So anyways, my, my, my thing was always like, yeah, I was always kind of thinking it through too much. Uh, when we were together, I also had grandiose ideas. The only reason like that story sounds a little crazy is because I am aware of how cameras do work. And so maybe what I was thinking, someone was going to be up on the roof or something. I remember it so well, Berto, because... As it was happening, because I, you know, because you, I just remember you, because this is before I really knew you. Yeah. And so you're like, I have this idea. And I'm like, oh, okay. And I'm leaning in. Yeah. Yeah. And then you proceed to, and I'm the cameraman. Yeah. I'm the cameraman and the producer and the editor. I, I, and I'm listening to you talk and I'm like, so, so what? <laughs> I just remember thinking, like, yeah. in what universe is that even humanly possible? You know, you're essentially describing a drone shot yeah. or a helicopter shot. And, but that's, I must have meant something like, I must have meant you're no, going to no, be no, up no. on the I roof. remember it very well, Bertel. You, you're a dreamer, you know, and this is, I'm not denying six, I 16, said that. This is 16 years. Ago. I'm just you aware were, of what's not possible. You were a hundred percent in the zone of dreaming. You yeah, know, yeah. You were, you were thinking out loud, you but know, there, but, but I'm aware of what's not possible. So I must have thought you're going to be on the roof and you're going to zoom in, zoom out. And like, you're going to back. I don't know. Who knows? Well, maybe, yeah. but still yeah. not possible given what we totally, had available, totally. which is, which is, you know, yeah. now I will say when we were in a band together, that kind of, annoying dreaming that Paul was doing and I have that one anecdote you you almost never did that like the the things that we did together in our band were somewhat grandiose but we achieved it you know yeah. like we had videos yeah. and lights and stuff but it, but it, I I totally agree and that's why I wrote down I I recognize that I have a lot of Paul aspects in yeah. that sense and overthinking overthinking and, and without me to be like you know cuz cuz we would do that you know with the band for right. example uh to say well but what can we do you right. know and, right. and and Paul didn't have that right no Paul didn't have someone to say well I'll say so he sort of did he's just not listening to him well George George was exactly saying like that's unfeasible but he was being a dick about it he was yeah, like he true. was like that's insane that's a yeah, stupid that's idea true. and he was actually like what if we just don't do anything you know right <laughs> Which you got the impression like George often did that, you know what I mean, about various uh-huh. things, you know, like I even think that they're, you know, how they stopped doing live shows in 65, 66, I think largely was because of George. I think Paul wanted to continue doing it, but George never really mm, wanted to. Be. And maybe John as well. But anyway, point is, is that uh, also 
as George was being kind of a not terribly a dick, but kind of a dick to Paul, I was I was absolutely agreeing with everything George was saying. Yeah, I'm he, like he was right. That is a stupid idea. And because, but it wasn't just Paul, by the way. Like the yes men around, yeah. were like, "Well, we could fly you to Tripoli. Anything's possible." Yeah, and John was doing it too. Like you know, there's that moment when. They ask Paul about the set design for Twickingham, and yeah. and Paul is like, "I'm not the artist. John and Yoko, they're the artists." So they go to John and Yoko, and then John proceeds to talk over Yoko the whole time, <laughs> and he starts talking about having plastic walls. Do you remember yeah, that whole thing? Yeah, yeah. And in my head, I'm like, I'm pretty sure that's impractical, <laughs> given the fact that you have like a week and a half to yeah, design yeah. all that stuff. You know what I mean? Yeah. So it, yeah. Oh, two things by the way. What, although I knew that this was coming out and I knew that there was this documentary about uh, the Beatles from Peter Jackson, I had zero idea what it was about until it started. Oh. So in my mind, I thought it was a documentary about the Beatles. Like there'd be talking heads and stuff. And, and about the, how they got started. And I thought, oh, that's fun. I mean, I've seen that before, but I'll... So when they skip through and then they get to the thing and I'm like, wait a minute. This, this is, is just, just about that. Just the footage. Yeah. I was so fascinated. No, and I knew it was because the press releases. Because did you see what Peter Jackson did with World War One? No. It's oh, the same no, thing. He, he, took, no. he took footage from World War One and gave it life. Okay. I didn't see that. And I had heard nothing other than you and Ron or whoever else saying, uh, have you watched Get Back Yet? Right. So... I watched it and was completely pleasantly surprised. And then the second thing is that I didn't realize at first in the first episode, I was thinking, wait, does this conclude with the rooftop performance or is there something else they're talking about? Is there some TV show? Was it, this Wait, you that, didn't know that? I knew, of course I knew about the uh, rooftop performance and I knew, but because I didn't know what this documentary was about. You thought maybe it'd just be tweaking him or something? I thought there was some other show they did or maybe... Because they I were talking sure. about, yeah, this. Yeah, yeah, and so I was like, what is this going to, you know? Well, that's, awesome. that's interesting because for me, I knew where it was headed and was, as they were coming up with these ridiculous ideas, <laughs> I was getting more and more frustrated. I'm just like, just get to the part where they resolve and go to the roof. And, and I had no so idea how it could possibly resolve to the rooftop. Yeah. Because I'm like, how are you going to get from Tripoli yeah. to the rooftop? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Yeah, it was. Um, oh yeah, it was. But anyway, uh, a little bit going to my notes here. George, and I knew this before as well from other experts talking about it. That George was clearly insecure about his music in yes. a way that I could relate to. So I could relate to Paul a lot as a someone who's trying to get stuff done. I could relate to George in terms of being practical and saying like that's not achievable. What you guys are talking about is you know, extremely impractical. Like there's got to be a more practical answer than what you guys are coming up with. So I, I really appreciated. He was literally the only voice of reason in that room because everyone was going with Paul, you know, all the, the yes, yes men were going with Paul. Totally. The and, other part I could yeah. relate to George was how, you know, cause you've uh, commented how I'm this way. And George is, John is kind of this way too, a little bit, but not in this documentary that George would be like, so, yeah, so I wrote a song. Yeah, I don't know. I think the words are stupid. And <laughs> yeah, yeah. I, I, don't, I feel like this song's just kind of dumb. Your songs are great, you know? <laughs> and, and, you know, because I, I, I'm that way all the time. Like, I, uh, I like my songs, but um, I'll, there are many very, times like, when I'll skeptical. just turn a corner and I'll just be like, everything I've ever done musically is shit. 
every 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 ounce every note every performance is i'm just tricking myself i'm like a I'm a, you know, a naked dude in, you know, a rock star, rock star emperor's clothes. You know what I mean? I'm just, I'm like, I'm acting like I'm a musician. And I'm like, Kirk, your naked emperor thing's awesome. (laughs) (laughs) But he says like, um, he's like, he doesn't want to play any of his songs in the show, which he doesn't, by the way, because he says, quote, they'll all turn out shitty. I know. It's (laughs) And you just got to, and, which isn't true because... I Me Mine is a pretty easy song to play. Yeah. And so is For yeah. You. for you. And and his songs, I really started liking everything he started doing. Yeah. You know, I mean, the, the other thing is, by the way, when you say stuff like that, it's almost worse. I think if, if George said stuff like that to Paul and John, they were probably okay. I mean, whatever. But when you used to say that, or whenever you say that, I always... I always almost take it personally because I'm always like, well, if you feel your stuff is crap, then then what's my stuff? Because your stuff is really good, you know. But your stuff is really. I know good. you say that, but that's how it makes me feel. I'm like, <laughs> you can't put yourself down. But anyways, I I can't even listen to talk to the girl because I sing a little line in that that just sounds like go I, ask her. <laughs> um, uh, so I, I sound like I sound like a fifth grader trying to sing and doesn't know how. You know, it's just awful. So there's there's an interesting. Thing. When when uh, I started the band in college, um, well, we already had the band, but in college I played with Shun and my friend Dave. And Shun, when he started, he started playing music from zero in high school. And so at first, I think he was also similar to George, in fact, kind of self-conscious about it because he wanted to write songs. He wanted to sing all these things, but he, he didn't have the background. But what, when did you, just side note, when did, when did you write your first song? I wrote my very, very first song at 15. It was on a keyboard. Did and you it was, did you uh, write a lot in high school? Not a lot. I wrote in high school. Okay, but so I by didn't the time know, you're in a band at this point, you've already written and thought about music. And, and I, I knew music theory. I knew how to play some piano. Okay. I, yeah. So you were way beyond Shun at this point. In that sense, yes. Uh, Shun's just a dude who likes Oasis. Shun is a dude who had really good music taste and listened to a ton of music. But what well, Shun did, except is for Oasis, he started practicing his butt off, right? Yeah, right. clearly. So in the first year of college that I joined, I joined. Uh, he was one year older. We all were. I was rooming with him. We were all playing together, but it was a little bit of a Paul George dynamic. And in my head, I looked to that as a reason why we were going to be just like the next Beatles. <laughs> because <laughs> so you consciously knew, like he, well, because he's a lead guitarist, yeah. And, I you're, was like, and you're a multi-instrument. And he's George. You're, and I was the bassist. Yeah. And so I'm like, yeah, this is why we're going to be like the Beatles. Because it's so silly. Because of our dysfunction is so similar to their dysfunction. <laughs> well, the very first um, band that I was quote-unquote in was before I was even ever in a band. And before I ever wrote music, I wanted to be in a band and uh, got three other guys in my school to be in a band and I designated all of us to be different roles in the Beatles. You know what Mm. I mean? (laughs) Anyway. um, So other things that I observed about the band and their psychology was that was nice to see in this documentary is how supportive they were at times to each other's songs. Um, You know, George helping Ringo out with a song, uh, George and Ringo, you know, as as Paul is just riffing on "Get Back," and you could, and I'm sure they didn't show us the full riff right. session. He's sitting there working on something, c- 
kind of, but not really, really just kind of noodling. Mm-hmm. And George and Ringo are just sitting there staring at him going, and I'm guessing what's happening is they're just like, I think a song is developing. I think that's another song. And they're, I think, slightly in awe, you know? Because, and eventually George is like, ooh, I like that. You know, you just see George, and it, I don't know, it kind of brings a tear to my eye just thinking about like them being nice to each other, you know, like and supporting each other. And then Ringo starts kind of like, oh, yeah, that, yeah, how about you do that a little? That sounds great, you know? Like, Like just unbridled appreciation for each other's music. Well, it was also surprising. What's that uh, John song that he did in his uh, album that he was playing with Paul? And Paul was actually singing quite a bit of it. Uh, it's it's one of the John songs. Uh, uh, give me some truth. Oh, yeah. All I want is... Uh, and my impression was that when John did that album, like I felt like almost every song was an F you to Paul or right. something. Including that song, even though it Which was out, totally part of the tabloid. Right, right. Even though that song, they were apparently writing it sort of together, or at least, you know, they were collaborating with it. Yeah, you just can't <laughs> imagine that they would go from this right. to a year later and hating each other. And, and him writing, you know, an actual song against Paul. Like, that's... Right. Yeah. But anyways... Well, we can because we did a yeah. whole deep dive on yes, John yes. and how he would black and white people. We, we, we can understand it, but it is incredible to see that transformation because, as you're saying, there are very tender moments in here where you're like, oh, there's the Beatles. Yeah. Uh, and John helping Paul with lyrics at times. Oh, oh, I love that moment when George is playing uh, what, what will become uh, All Things Must Pass. Yeah. And John says, oh, maybe instead of wind... It could be a mind. A mind can blow the clouds away. Yeah. Which is such an iconic John thing to do, right? right? That was always what he was great at, is like a little twist. Yeah. And George and, and is how like, fast. oh, it kind of looks like that on the page. Yeah, You're and right. how fast that John could come up with good lyrics, yeah. you know, and, and how a, just how a virtuoso he was with Yeah, it. that's another interesting thing, that he had such a facility with sounds. I won't even call it words. Yeah. S- vocal like sounds. Poet, poetry Because stuff. a lot of the things he says, I have no idea what they mean. Yeah, well, he's he's improving <laughs> with words and images right. all the time. Right. It's, he can, it's almost, and I think that's his defense. I think he yeah. developed that when he was young as a defense against the tremendous pain he was going yeah, through. Yeah, like was, a little tick almost. Yeah, like never be honest, always being always jokey. And, yeah. and, and and like it was this constant, he was like um, Robin Williams. Well, we right. And we've talked about how I have some of that, nowhere near to that extent, but like where um, in a lot of social situations, I have to always be on and always joking. Mm-hmm. And that some of that is useful, but some of it is also self-defense. Mm-hmm. And I, I can see that because especially in, in that early part of the documentary, that's like the only time he speaks up is to do some weird thing. Yeah. It's like weird. Yeah. And then, he, he's almost, yeah. he almost never says something directly. Yeah. You know, it's almost never just and, like, it's almost hey, like uh, what do you think, John? Oh, blah, 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 blah. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, okay. <laughs> Always in a weird voice or yeah. some kind of silly yeah. phrase or something. And like when they're sitting there and Paul actually says something like, I mean, do you think we should maybe consider the boat idea? And John's like, Boats are floating ships that we should look at with our eyes. Yeah. Uh, okay. <laughs> yeah, thanks. Yeah. 
and then uh, Yoko. He he he. Okay, so let's let's talk about George leaving for a second here. Oh God! So, Shocking moment. So there's this is a you know famous moment from even before this documentary came out. It's probably like the only scene if you've ever seen one that's from. And I was thinking about the pretension because to me, the way this people tell the story is. Oh, look at this moment. You know, Paul was a dick and George walked out. But we have to understand that there was years of developing elements that informed what was happening in that moment. And absolutely. And that the actual math goes back to what I was saying earlier. The actual math in George's head is relatable on a human level. We've all been through this where we're in a meeting or we're in a situation where like, I really don't want to be here. Yeah. I think I should just go. Yeah. And finally, it got to that point from like, you know what? And he didn't make a scene. And again, I don't know if it's because they're on camera, they're British, whatever. He just stood up. He's like, I'm out. Yeah. I'm yeah. out. I've reached the point where I'm just out. <laughs> yeah. So we know that he was not respected mm-hmm. as much as John and 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 Paul were. Even George Martin says, like, well, I mean, there are writers. Yeah. There are duo. Yeah, yeah, right. It's like they're not, you know, no one's like, you know, Lennon. And John's like, well, we'll just get Eric Clapton. Yeah, <laughs> right. Um, such a dig. And George would have to fight to get his quota, as he would talk yeah. about it, of two songs an album, which in the early days was fine because he, he wasn't writing much in the early days. He was starting to write more and more, you know, Taxman, right. other kinds of songs, uh, While My Guitar Gently Weeps, or, you know, no, notable precursors to this moment. Um, John and George used to be, apparently, according to reports, LSD buddies. Mm. Uh, so it may be like uh, it was John and Paul, and then there was like this transition point where it was John and George for a mm. bit when... When drugs start, because Paul was like not as much into the drugs, as- and George was younger than Paul, which means he was much younger than John. Yeah. So I could imagine even just age-wise, at first John would have a harder time fully bonding with George, and then George gets a little older. And right. So uh, at this point, uh, George might be kind of hurt that John isn't shining the light on him anymore. Mm-hmm. Um, of course, Yoko being in the studio, and so that's a and from reports, George was the most annoyed by that whole process. And at this point in the mythology, um, they aren't just four musicians. Two of them have generated the most hits ever and are like the greatest thing since sliced bread. Yeah. The four of them together are a brand. Yeah. So George must be feeling that constantly. Right. Like, I'm not even important around here. Right, right. And... Being told what to do by Paul, you know, John even says this in that private conversation. John's like, uh, you're very, essentially, he's saying, Paul, you're extremely particular about your songs. Yeah. You you tell everyone what to do. And you don't listen to us at all. Yeah. And, but when we bring a song to the group, we do listen to the other members of the group. Um, And so... George has had that been happening for years, you know, particularly as the songs become more complicated, you know, Penny Lane, these kind. Of, you could imagine Absolutely. With, like with Penny Lane, does does George even play on Penny Lane? And John know? says something very interesting, which was very surprising. He says, Paul, I don't know how he says it, but it's like, Paul, a lot of times I've done things in my songs I didn't want to do. 
just because you wanted you wanted it yeah and it it makes me feel in that moment i'm thinking oh there must have been a lot of times where at the time john was giving in inch by inch like sure what's the harm but it, it kept accumulating right and of course john had enough base of great songs and stuff to feel secure enough well and but george didn't and paul is an amazing contributor i mean absolutely like why my guitar gently weeps yeah I would say 25% of the quality of that song is because of, of Paul's harmony, bass, yeah. and piano playing. Yeah, yeah. Like, with that, because it is, the stuff that he's doing on that song is, like, it turns it from George just playing his acoustic guitar yeah. to, and, of course, Eric Pla- Clapton is playing. Absolutely. But the the stuff that Paul brings, you know, the harmonies, the richness of this harmonies that he brings to other people's songs. So, you know, I think he has something to say, but at the same time, you know, emotionally... So let's talk about this for a second, because, you know, to, for non-musicians out there, Berto and I have been in bands where we were together, and we're both, we're both uh, leaders and songwriters. You know, we're, we're John and Paul, so to speak. And so there would be this, there's always this dynamic of, um, I have a vision, I, you know, I've written this song, I have a vision of what I want it to sound like, and you're more like Paul yeah. in that... What you write all the parts in your head. You might even go home and on your computer actually record record and everything, and then you go, "Okay, Kirk, play this." Yeah, which was fine. And and I did that not with every song, but certainly some songs like uh, "Save Me" and others where I literally laid out the whole song. And yeah, I'm, and you yeah. just we're just like you know those player pianos, you know. <laughs> well, to be fair though, I. I did listen to ideas, like if someone's like, "Well, what if we did this?" But I, it is true that I approached it. It from was that very little, and, and but I never had a problem with it because yeah. it, I just didn't care. And yeah. and some of your parts are pretty good, you know, like uh, to save me the guitar riff at the yeah. beginning is, you know, would it, that'd be something I never would have come up with, but it sounded great and it made me look like I would have written a part like that, which I never would have. <laughs> um, but when it came to my songs, I never wrote your bass lines. I right. might have given you a you suggestion, me tips or suggestions, but, yeah. but little, like mm-hmm. honestly. Or I might have been like, ooh, I like that note, yeah. play that, or don't play that note. You did note. veto me playing a note in my own song. Because <laughs> it was ridiculous. It was so It was so bad. avant-garde. It was the third on the first drop beat of the bass. I, I get it, but it <laughs> no, was... No, I'm kidding, I'm kidding. It was, in the end, you were right. Yeah. At the time, I, get I was it. like, you know... <laughs> yeah, I get it. I was actually listening to an Interpol song the other day, and... He, that bass is so amazing and and he's like you and that he's like all over the place and he <laughs> played this oops. one he played this one totally dissonant note at the beginning of every line but it ends up working any but that's interpol yeah uh, your song was a and this is a more traditional song yeah, yeah it's like a a sea shanty sort yeah, of yeah. song and a no it, it worked out great but i think you and i the, the 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 reason you and i actually were able to collaborate in a band because I struggled a lot with collaboration. Before you met me, actually, it was even worse because I always thought that collaboration, I didn't understand collaboration. So as an example, me and Mitch, whom you know, we were trying to uh, record a song together and it was, uh, you know, a, an electronic type song where we started with someone else's song as a bass and then we were adding things to it. And I got so excited about it that I stayed up all night oh, yeah. finishing the song. And that's right, I forget. And then that. the next day I'm like, Mitch, hear this, I finished it. And I play it, and then he's the whole time. I'm, I'm noticing he's like really not into it or something. I'm like, what? And I didn't understand that collaboration doesn't mean I go and finish things by myself. Right. 
that happened to me multiple times with people. Yeah. So, but I always naively was like, no, no, I'm putting in the extra effort to finish our thing. Yeah. I didn't get it. But by the time you and I worked together, I think I had, I had grown a bit from that. Um, but yeah, it was, it was interesting that Paul has that aspect of like, he wants to control all the variables. Yeah. And you can't argue with his outcome. And the results are great. Yeah. I mean, if, if his songs were crap. Although, I can say that I think, uh, although he had amazing stuff after the Beatles, there were some things that I could tell no one was saying no to. Right. Absolutely. Uh, so, um, in, in, in just a little bit more on this in terms of how I worked, you know, in the, in the bands that I have been in, like with Bread Knife Incident, I, you know, had a bassist and a drummer with me and... Never did I write their bass part. Never did I yeah. write his drum part. I, I wrote my guitar part and my, you know, I'd bring the song and they just start playing. And I would say 90% of the time they took it in a complete different direction. That was in my head. But I, I set that up by design. Yeah. One, because I wanted them to feel like they were part of the band. <laughs> and two, I knew that they would probably come up with something better than what I would come up with because that's their instrument. So if I get married to something in my head, it'll just prevent me from being open to whatever genius they eventually will come up with. Yep. And you, so you could see that, that moment with Paul. Um, they're, they're playing, um, uh, is it Don't Let Me... Oh. No, no, it's one of Paul's songs. It's... Um, not oh darling, it's the other one that he. Uh, I've got a feeling. I've got a feeling, right? Yeah. Right. I've got a feeling, a feeling deep inside. Oh yeah, and oh, uh, what? what How does the verse go? Oh yeah. Uh, oh please believe uh, me. me. I hate the days of chain. Oh, oh yeah. yeah, and then there's that break. And George traditionally in all Beatles songs will come up with a little riff. Yeah. You know there there'll be a little riff there. Yep. And that's his job, you know. He's the lead guitarist, you know. That's that. That's that's his. If he can't do that, what does he do? <laughs> he's not going to do anything because John's John, playing the rhythm. John's playing, and he's playing kind of a complicated rhythm part. Right. It's always filled. Yeah, or filled. Yeah, he's going to do fills. Yeah. And so George is starting to do it, and Paul's being a dick because he's not like. Yeah, what George was coming up with was terrible at first. He's like, just learning the part. Right, like give it some time. So this is the part that I actually I relate way more to George because I I was always comfortable always with things sounding like crap initially while you're learning. Right. Well, and um, you as a, you know, as when someone else is writing a song, you fit well with me because I would... I would let you, you yeah. know, and I, and half the time I wouldn't even mean listening to you that closely because I'm like, well, we're just kind of jamming. Right. But we've been in a band with other people right. <laughs> who would take massive amounts of issue yeah, with yeah. you <laughs> getting to know your part, you yes, know, you developing yes. your baseline. Yes. And our band has broken up because over yes. over those. So, so we had a massive breakup. We had one of those McCartney Harrison moments with someone. Yes. Yeah, that was exactly yeah. like this. So as I'm watching that scene, I was that was the note I wrote. I was like, oh, I can relate to this moment so much. Someone, someone just assuming yeah. that you're going to come up with something terrible, so right. don't even try. And I could relate to it from both sides, to be fair, because, yes, I could relate to Paul wanting to control everything. I could also relate to George being like, dude, I'm just learning this. But you would never have been a dick about it. Not like that. No. You, you were like, no. the only time when I I uh, 
really uh, didn't like what you had decided was, and we've talked about this before, we jammed on Aquarian before you had really formed the song. Mm. And it was such a euphoric moment because, yeah. you know, there are these moments in bands when you're jamming on a new song and it's it's like it's like falling in love for the first time. Yeah, it's just yeah. like you're you're it's all nonverbal and you're all in sync with each yeah. other and and you're just like, oh my God. And it might not even sound that good, who knows? But it, it feels it feels amazing. And then I'm like, and I kind of came up with this guitar part. You were just like, do something on D and yeah, yeah. and kind of like make it rocky and make yeah. it syncopated and and I was like da 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 and I and I also was thinking this is kind of cool because I'm putting a little bit of my punk uh, attitude into one of Berto's songs that usually don't have any punk in it. Right. This is going to give it some some punch, you know, some like some rockiness to it. And I thought this is going to be great with, with and and what you were coming up with on the vocals, you know, it was yeah. really like da 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 da. It was current too at the time. Da da da. Like it was. It was a current sound at the time. Yeah, and then we come back the next practice, and you had completely rewritten my guitar part and said, "No, no, no, play this." And I'm like, "You took." 90% of the life out of that guitar part. I, I am wondering one thing though. I, I'm wondering if you're, if you're, the sequence you have is correct because here's, here's why I'm bringing this up. We played the, the, what I call version one of Aquarian no, no, Live. No. So this is, so there's, okay. there's version zero. I'm okay, talking okay. about so version, you're talking about version zero. zero. Then I changed it for version one. Yeah. We had a version one, which we played and the Mexicans loved it. Do you remember this? Yeah. Carlos's enclave. Yeah. Carlos was our, our, our Mexican drummer. He was amazing. And, yeah. He had all this. He was our drummer. He happened to be Mexican. He's not well, like our no, no, Mexican no. We drummer. had several drummers. He was the Mexican one, <laughs> and he had this. And he had a lot of friends from Mexico. From Mexico, and they would all show up to the show. Yeah, and they came up after the show and be like, "Yeah, yeah, that's an amazing song." Yeah, it was. It was always a good song, but um, but then you know what? The happened? only time when I. Because when you would change things that I my parts, mm -hmm. most of the time it'd be well. There were anyway. Well, so I, I think there was three stages. First, I I I I'm sorry about that. I don't remember all the details. You probably made it better. Maybe you I don't know. Made but it all I know is I but could I see how that pushing would be back. I remember pushing back to you and being like, yeah. I'm being like, no, 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 no. It was so good okay. the other day, and you're and like, no, 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 Kirk. This is this is okay. going to be so much better. And, and I, I was and like, I'm sorry about that. I now, was like, ah. The third version happened because. I was working with a producer, and he sent me a rearrangement, and he gave me tips, and then I followed. Yeah, it the third version was fine. The too. third version is fine. It's just the f the sec the yeah. first version. There was something it, raw about it. Yeah, it yeah. was it was rockier. Yeah, yeah. Anyways, so sorry about that. <laughs> <laughs> no, it was fine. Yeah. Um, but I will say, with the bass note that <laughs> I told you not to play from "Dance with Me," yeah. I developed that entire guitar part on my own. That's right. So you didn't you and you never yeah. said do this no. or that and that's a pretty well, key and part component of it is because as you know I'm not primarily a guitarist oh this is what I was gonna say I I think the other reason why this might have happened to Paul as well although you know I'm not putting myself in the same category as Paul but the, we're both bassists in the band and when you write a song a if lot you of only it. show up with your bass line yeah yeah what's the song yeah <laughs> so you have to tell the guitarist something to, yeah. right now the the truth is like in the case of dance with me. I don't play guitar for real. Like I can come up with stuff and come up with like maybe a lick, maybe a little soul, but I don't know actually like uh, the Smiths puzzle me. I listen to that guitar and I'm like, I don't understand what's happening. Yeah. Right. So I told you, 
here's the chords. Yeah. And I'm so glad because what, what you played was beautiful. And it just makes that song shine, glimmer. Yeah. So there were times when, and I really like it, the guitar part. And so there are times when you absolutely just were just like, you know, do your guitar thing on, on this song. Yeah. Which, you know, what, anyway, point is, is that of the Paul moments that you had, there was only one moment where I was really? like, and I wasn't <laughs> even that bummed out because it was your song. You know yeah, what yeah. I mean? I wasn't going to be like, yeah. but well, I like that. You know, it wasn't that big of a deal. I was even more like that with Shun. And I think that was annoying to him, I'm sure, when we were early on. Because I'd be like, so everything like has to be this way. Yeah, yeah. So, you know, I think if you're not a musician and you watch that scene between Paul and George, yeah. you're like, Paul's an asshole. Yeah. But if you're a musician and you're, tr- and you're a songwriter and you're trying to produce, you're trying to make something that isn't just fun for the band members, but right. actually sounds good. Yeah. Then you kind of understand <laughs> Paul's position. I also saw an interview with Peter Jackson where he was relating to Paul from a director's perspective. Right. Because he's like, dude. We're on a deadline here. Yeah. You can't fridge around the whole time. Right. And what Paul was saying, but again, in a terribly yeah. meandering way, yeah. let's play the song kind of straight. Yeah. And then we'll do the riffs later. Yeah. But the way Paul would say it was so kind of, I don't know. Hard to get even. Hard to get and also kind of dickish. You know, he wasn't like, he wasn't like, George, you're an amazing guitarist and you're great. Right, exactly. And you'll come up with something amazing. I'm sure you will. And I'm yeah. gonna I'm gonna give you a slot, and you're gonna come up with something. But I can't I can't even visualize this song until we play it straight. And what and if I need, it's noodling all over? <laughs> yeah, and I need you just to play the chords for yeah. now. But yeah. but later on, dude, I, I'm gonna I'm gonna throw to you. And you can do your your subpar weird ratty stuff later. <laughs> <laughs> so you hear what I'm saying? Yes. It's more direct. Yes. And watching this documentary, I just was they needed a I was shaking therapist. my head so many times, just being like, "You four are the worst at communicating." <laughs> and because oh, Paul, yeah. the way Paul would say it would be like. Look, you know, hey, hey, you know, it's just like if we're just gonna, you know, noodle all the time. Like, what are we doing? You know, hey, you know, we 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 got the, you know, how I about, know, you know, know, you know so it's like all this like like fluff. It's like, and Glenn, Paul, just fucking say the <laughs> sentence. You know, Glenn Johns was too rookie at that point to assert himself. He tried, he, you know, he would put in a couple of ideas, yeah. and George Martin was absent, sadly. Well, he was there some of the time, but I, no, but I, I think, mean, like I was expecting yeah, he would be the one I was thinking would come in and be like, hey, kids, yeah. So I think the structure before uh, Epstein would have been there, yeah. and John would have been like because there were. And you I, notice I, that when John and or Paul and George were fighting, John says, "Okay, girls." You, yeah. you hear him say that. He's yeah. like, "Okay," you know. He's trying to okay, like. Girls. He's like, "Hey, you know, let's stop yeah. doing this with some." But you could imagine him two years earlier being like, "Hey." The two of you. He knock was it de- off. De- he was definitely not assertive about it. He was kind of like, yeah. And most of the time, he was just sitting there passively. I know. Whereas I could totally imagine years before, if they had even had such a situation, uh, George Martin goes to Brian Epstein. Is like, hey, uh, can you make sure they understand the deadline or whatever? You know, like, and then Brian talks to John, and then the they can control the situation, and they have none of that structure, none right. of it, right? And there's too many people around, by the right. way. Right, too many throwing cooks. So many ideas about everything. Yeah, Shh. too many cooks. Too many cooks. Too many cooks. So George leaves. Um, and okay, actually, so there's some kind of. Uh, did you know that there might have been a fist fight? Well, no, that was the rumor, but apparently there wasn't. Well, okay, so. 
uh, George denies it and always has that there was a fist fight. So before George walks out, before the, you know, the fight about the song, you know, what they're, whatever they're working on, whether don't let me down just before they're working on don't let me down, George and John are off camera. George Martin has adamantly claimed he saw them fist fighting each other. Not like full on, but it was, you know. It wasn't the play thing they showed on the. No. Where John's like, we're supposed to be fighting each other. Well, that was later yeah, because yeah. it was written in the oh, papers because yeah, yeah. right, right, I right. think George Martin and others had yeah. leaked it to the press. But George Martin, mm-hmm. who you would believe, and you know that George Martin yeah. wouldn't make crap up, especially because right. it would make him look, everyone look bad. He said there was a physical fight between John and George. We So if that's true, which we don't know. That would be so sad. John is going to George and saying, like, I think, because we know that John could kind of swing wildly with George. And I think John was going to George and saying, like, will you shape the fuck up? Like, get in line. You know what I mean? I think that, because I'm just trying to imagine why John yeah. would be, like, yelling at George. And I think... Because I think John was, like, wanting to make it work. You yeah, know? yeah. Well, he, he said that many times. I want to do this. I want... Yeah. It's just he wasn't in the right frame of mind or something, but he wanted to do it. Yeah. And George was poo-pooing a lot of things. Yeah. And so John, I think, went to George to tell him to step in line. And George is like, uh, that's, like, the worst thing you could say to me at this point. You know what I mean? I've been stepping in line for years now. Yeah. And... I don't want to. I don't even, I don't like how this feels. And then they get into a fight. Then they come back to who's twicking him, you know, the, in front of the camera, and they start trying to work on this song, Don't Let Me yeah. Down. Paul is like, George, like, what are you doing? You right. know what I mean? And it's, yeah, you know, yeah. building up intention. And then he just suddenly walks out. So the way that it looks in the simplistic version is Paul is an a hole and George was just reacting normally but if you take into consideration that john might have literally punched george in the face about 10 minutes earlier off camera it certainly kind of makes it so much more complicated you know the is don't let me down is when they're sitting there and paul has this bad idea to do the echoing lyrics terrible idea oh god again george and george is saying it's just it's, it's the same shit. Well, but George <laughs> is being I know a dick. Could have been. I know. Like, I know. there's a way to say. It. I'm just like, hey, um, I get this call and response, but you know, I just don't like it. I think, and, and it, I think it, I think it degrades the song a little bit. And it's so interesting that but he says it. He says it. I can't remember what words he was saying, but he says it makes it sound like a silly song. Or and something. he says something very interesting, which which really makes you think that maybe because he was so checked out at this point. He was one of the John? only ones with George. Oh, George. Well, John was checked out in a different way. He was still in the band and everything. But, he was just but George like, was like half in, George half was half out. and half out. And maybe because of that, he had perspective that the others didn't have. Because he says, if this was on tape and you're listening to that's the first thing to go. Right. He's like, you would cut that straight out. Like, yeah. And that, that was a great way of saying he should have been more in that vein of like, you are good songwriters. And this is bad. If so I suggested it. <laughs> you, yeah. So I think you're kind yeah. of in love with your idea here. Yeah. But at the same time, if you're George, just be quiet. They'll work it out. Yeah, yeah. They're, we're in the or beginning phase. just express phase. your opinion once and yeah. leave it alone. Yeah, and just keep going and then the, and they'll it, eventually work it out of the song. Because Paul was clearly on a... On a and, and I've gotten... Like, we can relate. I can certainly relate to, like, trying to double down on a bad idea. 
And Glenn or, Johns or tries not, to help. Or you just get kind of married to a, sure. a, a, an idea yeah. rather than evaluating how it sounds. And then Glenn tries to help. And they kind of try his idea, which right. I didn't. I didn't hate. I thought it was and, well. It was furthering the bad idea, but it wasn't the call response. It was like you sing once, then you sing, then you guys sing together, then all of you sing. Yeah, it was. Right? A t- it was awful to listen to. I was just like, this sounds so bad. And then when George says, "This sounds bad," I but was I like, but I think oh. it was Glenn's way to ca- cut out the call response. Oh, okay, but it didn't work. And then Paul producer. went right back to it. Yeah, he's like, okay, let's still do the call response. Right. <laughs> So as you said, you know, the ages, uh, John and Ringo are 28 at the time, Paul is 26, and George is 25. Unbelievable. These are... Wait, how old is Ringo at the time? Uh, John's age, 28. Okay, 28. 28, 20... Paul is 26. Right. Tw- he's 26. Nice. He's already accomplished, you know, 20 different musical careers by and, this And point. emotionally, like, I hadn't had... A panic attack yet. I hadn't gone to a therapist yet. <laughs> yeah. I haven't like realized anything wrong with me. So to go with the timeline that we were referring to earlier, um, you know, the pandemic, we're almost coming up on two years. Yeah. So if we, so two years, just think of all the things you've right. done over the past couple of years. Right. I showered. All, all the things. <laughs> <laughs> so let's look at what the Beatles had accomplished up until... <laughs> They were right, right recording this album yeah. two two years previous. Just so, two years from so we're going seven. We're going January sixty nine to January sixty seven. Oh, it's gonna be so crazy. So early sixty seven, they record Sergeant Pepper, <laughs> which is arguably on you know in in all the oh lists, God. Rolling Stone, whatever it's one of the top albums, uh, of always all time. top three albums of all time. Yeah, and and it's got some amazing songs in it, whether you don't like the album or not. So. Right, and um, made rock and roll the way it is today. I right. mean, it, it is, yeah, it's just, yeah. and made recording and made right. band albums, you know, yeah. like everything. Um, uh, later that year, you know, summer 1967. Wait, not later as in like towards the end of the year. Yeah. Just six months later. A few, well, a few months <laughs> yeah, later. a few months later. They record Magical Mystery Tour, which is right. a great album. It's got amazing songs. Fool on the Hill. The whole video concept, not yeah. so much, but yeah. Um, they also perform all you need is love which was the very first like satellite concert. and they write it on the way to the thing <laughs> yeah. um 1967 they also this year record penny lane strawberry fields oh my god incredible yeah singles that are amazing no no it wasn't penny lane the b-side for strawberry no strawberry was the b-side to penny okay strawberry fields forever is the b-side yeah yeah I mean, Later, 1967, they mostly record Yellow Submarine, which is their third album that year. Now, arguably, Yellow Submarine is like only half an album, but still. They also, so next year, early 68, so at this point, Brian Epstein dies, you know what I mean? Around yeah. this time. Oh, they also make a movie, Magical Mystery Tour, right. which was terrible, but still, they made a movie. Um, early 1968, they, they go to India, the four of them, and study, you know, Indian... Uh, religion. <laughs> yeah. Summer 1968, they record the White Album, which is a double album. So it's essentially two albums, but one could say it's one album and some outtakes. They also record... The White freaking Album. Yeah. Amazing album. <laughs> uh, my favorite. One, well, not my favorite. But it's, it's got some second. of the best songs in it. It's like... Yeah. Oh. Uh, 1968, <sighs> they also record Lady Madonna, Hey Jude, Revolution. So they're also recording major singles, and yeah. that's the way it was back then. Singles were mainly what, the, what bands were supposed to do. And the yeah, albums. like I said, 
Only five months prior, they've released one of the greatest songs of all time, Hey Jude. Yeah. Uh, sorry, Hey Jude. Yeah. And then they, in 1969, Let It Be. So this is four number one albums <laughs> in two years. With dozens of songs in the top, uh, top certainly one. top 100, it's top 20. Yeah, several yeah. number one singles. Yeah. Um, also, another album that's a number two album, Yell Ill Submarine. Yeah. They do a feature movie, which is Magical Mystery Tour, a cartoon movie, which is Yell Submarine, and a documentary. <laughs> this is all in two, two years. years. 24 months. Two years. They completely changed the landscape of music and the industry and albums and the culture. You know, I mean, everything. So they didn't single handedly change the culture, but they were a huge part of it. In two years. Justin Bieber probably le- releases, an, and I'm not picking on Bieber, you know, like I said, Radiohead probably anyway, yeah. uh, releases two albums every 10 years. So I'm sitting here, it's 1990, and it's when I've moved up here, and this is when I start kind of really started diving into learning more about the Beatles, and I go to the library, I check out books about them and things like this. 1990 is only 20 years after their breakup, mm. but of course, in my mind, the Beatles had happened, you know, two centuries prior, right? And in my mind, the early cavern years is like a whole e- eon of time. Yeah, it's like and then World they War had, One years or right, something. Right, and then they had their period of time where they were mop tops, and that was decades, right? Yeah. And then they get to the wacky period, and that was a few more decades. Like, to me, everything was these long stretches of time. Yeah. And years later, when they were old, because, you know, they have beards, when they were old, they do the more mature albums. Yeah. And then eventually, they, they get to Abbey Road, which is when they're there, the senior rock stars of the world. Yeah. And all of this happened in like six years. Yeah. Like it's I mean, yeah. ridiculous. Okay. They, broke, they broke up well before 1970. Oh, my gosh. So they were in operation with, from the time Ringo entered yeah. from 63 to 69. Yeah, I mean, 62-ish, but they were really not popular till, till 63 worldwide. Right. And that's six years, dude. Yeah. Six years. I think there's things that I did uh, 10 years ago that to me feel like yesterday. Yeah. yeah. Not six, the song. <laughs> six years ago was 2015. Yeah. You know? uh, we just started on Patreon. You oh, know? my God, dude. Like, yeah. The, the, it's to go, Yeah, exactly. So the thing that I thought about as I was thinking about all that they had accomplished in that time, because I, I really believe that they were better together. And, you know, John even, as you know, George is talking about with John, that he has so many songs, and he does. You know, he has so many great songs that he will release over the next few years on his on Beatles records and yeah. and his solo records. That and John's like, yeah, you know, and and George even says something, and I'm just like, oh, it's such a missed opportunity because I wish the Beatles stayed together. George says, if I'm allowed to to release my own album. This will make the whole Beatles thing yeah. more easy. Right. If everyone can just do their own thing. If we can all do our, particularly me, if I were can. Were they all, not allowed by contract? Was no, that, they were. But it was oh. such a culture of, because John oh. had already le- released an album on his own by this he point. He did? Yeah. Whoa. Or soon after or that. Or soon after. Okay. Like, uh, or was in the works. But you know, the point it was is like that it, it wasn't disallowed. It was it known. Was, it was known that John yeah. was, you know, and he had, I think he had released all. Give it piece must of not have been yet because George says something like, we could all do this. We could all do our own things or whatever. Yeah. Like, yeah. I think Give Peace a Chance still has McCartney's name on it because they were under contract right. to write together. Anyway, I don't, you know, don't get at me for that. But point is, is that 
there's no contract in the world that would have, pre- especially since they were developing their own contracts yeah, right. at this point. Oh, that's that, true. They owned the company that owned right. the contracts. So <laughs> they could have absolutely all released solo albums and then three years later did a Beatles album. Yeah. You know, then a bunch of other solo albums. Yeah. And then, you know, you know, we see other artists do this yeah. sometimes. I think Mick Jagger might have his own yeah. albums. Uh, it's a freeing sort of thing. Yeah. And because and, and just think of the and if they kept George Martin with them, just think like in 1974, what the Beatles could have done together or yeah. 1980, what the yeah. Beatles could. Because as we've been saying, Paul without John can be very cheesy. There's a little lacking there. Yeah. And not only in his lyrics, but also in his music. You know, he can be yeah. really like bubblegum. Yeah. And John without Paul can be unmotivated and yeah. lack direction and too much Yoko screaming. And a little rough around the edges, which yeah. is endearing to a certain extent. But not... Um, like, there's a lot of songs of John's that are really good ideas, but they never were polished. Right. Yeah. Now, yeah. some of my favorite songs of all time came from John yeah. in his Je- solo stuff. Jealous Guy, yeah, Imagine, yeah. Woman, yeah. you know, days like these. Uh, and, and that's the other thing is he eventually came around, John, you know, in 1980, his final album was so poppy, was yeah. was so John Paul influenced, yeah, it seemed, yeah. you know. And you just think like what they could have done together. Yeah. And it was, and it was like, they were so close to achieving that. Like, why didn't they just say, hey, Let's not break up. Let's let's just all do our own albums for a couple albums, yeah. and let's revisit this. But they but they were like, nope. And then the tabloids get involved, and John starts to black and white everyone. You know, he starts saying a bunch of crap <laughs> about everybody. You know, part of me though thinks, would the legend be as awesome as I know. big? You know? I know. <laughs> I was thinking that too because you know, especially with Abbey Road, if they didn't have Abbey Road, right, this band would have gone out on such a fizzle, yeah. and. It was the fact right, that they right. went out like that means that they don't have bad albums. You yeah. know, there's, there's no, there's not like think about. There's so many bands where you're just like, eh, you, like REM Skip for example. One, yeah. yeah, like I wish REM would have broken up in 1989 because everything <laughs> after that point, it's just like terrible so in my in my mind. Yeah, you yeah. know, so yeah, I I could see that. But then you look at a band like the Stones, who had. Hits right. throughout the seventies and eighties, you know, they they kept going. The Stones did something that bands don't like doing, and they were just okay doing. They stuck to a formula. Yeah, and I'm, I'm like, by the way, I'm not. Some of their songs were very well. Their seventies, their seventies stuff broke from their. I mean, they were always a garage band, right? But what I'm saying is, and maybe they just didn't go far enough into the late eighties and things. Well, I mean, I know they're still together, but I mean, they didn't keep putting out more and more different albums. Because that's what gets in the way a lot for some of the bands, right? It's like, we can't do what we've done before. Right. And like at the, some point, like the, the Stones decided, why don't we just keep playing and being in a band because people like what we do already. Right. Yeah. Yeah, you just have to wonder what could have happened. And, yeah. and and you just also, not only for solo albums, but how about just take three years off of the Beatles in general, like yeah. from music in general. Like yeah. they were on a constant treadmill <laughs> yeah. since the since the day they met, you know, yeah. since the Hamburg days, they were probably never not doing Beatles. Well, and like you were just saying, it was like in those two years they did so much. You know, in the Abbey Road uh, documentary, there, there there's the, in the Abbey Road album, whatever they released a few years back, George Martin's talking about it and he's like, well, Paul approached me and said he wanted to do another proper album. And I said, with John, he's like, yep, 
and you know, I will only do it if we do it the way we used to do it. He's like, yeah. So when I heard that, in my mind, I'm thinking, you know, 20 years later, Paul came to my door and knocked. And I know it's not, right? But that's how it sounds. Like you open the door, Paul McCartney, pleasure to see you. This was five months later. <laughs> yeah. So it's like the timelines don't even make sense. Yeah. But it's funny because you, you can And that see- album is so much better than Let It right. Be. Right. And, and you could see what, what must have happened. And now it does make sense in context. Why is George Martin appearing to not be doing much in, in this point of the band? Because he wasn't able to. Because probably before we saw, before this video or documentary, he had tried and wasn't able to control them. Right. And then only when Paul and the rest willingly are like, fine, George, let's do it your way. One last album. Yeah. Then he's like, okay. Yeah. And I almost, I don't know, but there were glimpses of a pattern that the whole band had, or maybe maybe Paul and John, because they did most of the talking. I mean, that was actually, that was another kind of interesting thing. Like, George and Ringo barely said anything. Yeah. It was, it was Paul and John, Paul and John, Paul and John, talking, talking, joking, joking. They're both extroverted narcissists. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> and, and, and you could just imagine George just being like, uh, uh, these two guys, you know, and, and Ringo's just like falling asleep, you know. And it works great at the beginning of the band because right. especially when you're not that way, you're like, well, we need someone to step up. Right. So uh, I thought I saw a pattern with not only George Martin as they would banter with him just sitting in the room with them, but also with Glenn, the, their, their new producer, that they would, they would kind of um, scapegoat the producer. Mm, like yes. they, they, you know, Glenn would, <laughs> Glenn would be like, uh, Paul would be like, okay, we'd like to do it again. And, you know, Paul's like, oh, he's not paying attention. Well, well, well. Yeah, you know? and then they would make little passive-aggressive jokes like John's like, Okay, Glenn, if you're going to screw everything up or whatever. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> well, you know, I know you're not going to like this, Glenn, but we're yeah. the band, so shut up. You know, that kind of attitude where I didn't think that was deserved for Glenn. Glenn not at all. Glenn was being nice all. all the time. And, and I mean, they did it in a way where it was like, oh, we're just joking. But it seemed But if mean. I'm Glenn, I'm like, yeah. uh, Like, ha, ha, ha. We, I, you know. The first time was sort of not funny. So you can imagine <laughs> that, you know, the Beatles in 1965, as their heads are starting to balloon. Balloon. They're like, uh, oh, daddy's upstairs, you know, talk, oh, you know, yeah. at Apple Studio, like talking down to us. Oh, George, right. you know, and there's even little outtakes from some of the songs in that time where they're like, um, where you can hear John like kind of taking shots at George Martin a little bit. Well, and we know from the White Album, like Paul would come in in the middle of the night to record, you know, how, why don't we do it on the road or whatever? And yeah. it's like, you could just tell that they were starting to just like veer off. Yeah. And George was probably, Martin was probably like, uh, what do I do here? <laughs> right, yeah. You know. So I was just wondering if there was a a kind of a a way for the band to bond by being rebellious to the uh, to the producer. The other factor that I don't think we've talked about yet, and we've talked about pretty much everything in two and a half hours, is this is the late 60s. We all understand the Western cultural... Uh, youth culture of the time like this was some of the most chaotic years in our history in the western world not only with the vietnam war civil rights there were shootings and and riots and uh, massive unrest and also very much anti-authority and i also felt like that was a part of this 
of the problem was that they didn't, you know, uh, have an authority. And whenever anyone stepped into authority, there was a constant undermining of that authority by everybody. <laughs> right, you know? right. They had to because it was part of the norm. <laughs> and the people who were stepping into authority were stepping into it like the way a child would. You yeah. know, instead of Paul being like, okay, let's, let's like, let's do a timeline here for, instead he's like, Let's take a boat to Libya. You know, it's like the the way what a child would say. You know, sure. And uh, I was just thinking, if it was a different era, there would have been more structure or something. But since you know, Apple Corps, remember, it was like we want to be a fashion and a art thing and a yeah. music thing. You know, it was all outside of the box. You know, everything was like big and weird and yeah. and new and like, you know, we're free now. We can do whatever. And I think that absolutely was a factor in the ridiculousness of the planning of this whole right, thing. Right, you know, right. Even from the beginning, like you said, you could just imagine Paul being like, hey, let's do this. And then they have this all this money to throw around. Right. And they, they, the cameras show up. Well, that's something that, you know, if, if you're casually watching this and you're not aware of the cost of recording equipment and what it takes to when they're like showing up with an eight track console back then it was yeah. George Harrison and he's like well it's 10,000 quid 10,000 quid at the time was a ridiculous amount of money and the fact is that some of these things were one piece of a kind because like they built it for him or they did this or whatever and everything there is expensive but EMI was like yeah well there's no mountain we won't move for the Beatles right so because they're taking so much of their money, you know, right. and they, they kind of talk about that too. Yeah. And then we, the Alan, they're like, we subsidize you. <laughs> yeah. And then the other interesting thing about John's psychology was how smitten he was with Alan Klein. Yeah. That is interesting. Do you know much about Alan Klein? No. So from other documentaries, Alan, and I don't know the truth of this, but you heard. The, the, that was the Rolling Stones? Um, yes. I don't know. But he's an American music promoter. Like a you know, is, is that the guy he went to meet with to like one in the morning? Yeah, yeah. So he was one of the Rolling Stones for a little bit, like their manager or something. Okay, but apparently Glenn Johns and other members of the Rolling Stones didn't have a good time with him. Right. Yeah. So he was reportedly a total con artist. And, oh, really? Yeah. Oh, and wow. was I think in the end fleeced the Beatles of a lot of money. No. I, if, I'm not sure was going, was to, going to or I, I, I don't and they know. had already lost money before right. that. Well, see, that's what they were looking for. Yeah, and they they, you hear him talking about that. They're like, yeah. we need someone to like, he, you know, John's not going into too much detail because of the camera, but he's saying like, well, you know, he knows where it all went. He yeah. knows where it is. He, he knows, knows where it, it is. Yeah. And we need a con artist to fight the con on our art. side. Yeah. We need a con artist on our side. Yeah. Um, I didn't. I, I mean, I heard all that. I I didn't catch that. Of course, yeah. There's a whole story because because yeah. John got Alan Klein, and then George and Ringo were convinced by John to go with Alan Klein, but Paul was like, "No, I don't oh, want to go with Alan Klein." Paul wanted to go with someone. I think in like Lind, Linda's brother or something. Oh, because I actually I, I I heard somewhere today in one of the many videos I was watching that. I think Mick Jagger or someone from the Rolling Stones specifically told Paul not to go with that guy. Right. And so I don't know, you know, who was right or who was wrong, but yeah. I think it points to Paul's psychology that he would be so smitten by someone. Or John, you mean. John, sorry. Yeah. John would be so smitten by 
um, someone oh, who father speaks, figure, maybe. yeah, or right, a father figure who's very grandiose. And yeah. and the other thing you hear John say is, I think what John was indicating, and I I don't know, I'm speculating that Alan Klein might have. Because, you know, John was saying, he knows us. He knows us. He knows me. He knows you. He knows you guys. Yeah. So you could see Alan Klein going like, I know the band. I know you're the leader. You're the smart one. And Paul's like the histrionic, like, doofbag. And, and you know, like, you can imagine right. Alan Klein like, oh my God, you know? con- conning John <laughs> yeah. and saying everything that John yeah. wants to hear because Alan Klein's really good at tricking people. And you would think John would be, like, street smart, but he's got this, like, uh, kind of delicate ankle, you know? Right. Exactly. <laughs> The Achilles heel. Um, let's talk a little bit about gear. Um, you know, they always play the Fender Bass 6, which I really want now. It's, I've always wanted one because of the Beatles, but... I didn't even understand what I was looking at. I'm like, is he playing a guitar? Why does it sound like a bass? Right. I always thought it was a guitar until like five years ago. But Because like they, when they were playing some of the stuff, I'm like, okay, he's playing the bass, but what is that? It's definitely, yeah, it's a bass. It's a six-string bass yeah. and has a shorter uh, neck. Uh-huh. But longer than a guitar, yeah, and it has different gauge strings on it naturally, and it absolutely sounds like a bass. And whenever John and George played the bass, they always played the Fender Bass Six, yeah. which I don't understand because you. Well, they couldn't play Paul's because they were left-handed. Oh, they had to play. Something or why else. don't they just get another bass? I don't in know. There? I don't know. But yeah. Well, okay, but that, I didn't think about that. But yeah, yeah that would make sense. But and, and you notice also because remember Paul sometimes would jerry rig things because like his Rickenbacker was like sort of odd because it it was not really. I can't remember what he said, but he's like, well, such and such is in the wrong place because it's like not really left-handed. Right. Right. <laughs> um, and it's funny how they had the fight with EMI. To get an eight-track recorder, yeah. Um, oh, and then they're like, "Well, it's like Paul's like, I know they got one for the for the BG or for the Beach Boys for the Beach Boys. Well, they're like, well, they're, he's, they're the American. American. <laughs> and, and the thing is, is that they they still did not get an eight-track. They just got two four-tracks and and uh, Daisy Chain, yeah. and then they got and then for some dumb reason they got George's eight-track to mix down to. Why not just record with George's eight-track? I don't know. Maybe. Maybe the heads were in quality. Yeah, the heads. What I will say, and again, if you don't know what you're looking at, you know, it's it goes over your head. But uh, having done so much reading, and I've got that the red book about all their recording stuff, and yeah, I I looked into all the original equipment, all these things, and just I was kind of drooling because even though it seems like they haphazardly assembled things together, like every one of those pieces of equipment was hand built. Really. Tubes, like, like those, those microphones, steel. pretty much every microphone, vocal microphone I saw looked like a Radio Shack microphone. Well, the problem with those mics, or not the problem, uh, first of all, of course, they weren't Radio Shack, but the reason they were using those and not their their usual uh, use, uh, Newman 67, 67s is because uh, they, they had to do it like so close to each other right. and they didn't want the bleed. They wanted dynamic. Right. Mics. But... But even those little mics, they're good mics. They're just they were yeah. Those they are, look like crap. And why they, was John and Paul singing into the side of, of a that di- one? I yeah. know, right? <laughs> I'm like, point it at your face. But I don't know if it's that. If that. If yeah, I don't know if it's if not that a was side like register. A, it's that's a yeah, top register it was mic. Very weird. I'm like, why? And but but then I saw John kind of fuss futzing with you know the the boom mic, and it was all kind of janky and loose, and he just sort of left it, and I'm like. That would give me so much 
agita because I when I have a microphone, yeah. especially if you're playing the piano, I want that thing to be secure. And John right. just kind of and they're recording at this point, and right. John just kind of like flops the mic down, and I just I just <laughs> felt like and those other mics that they use on the rooftop were those those like long I don't right. know what you call them, but they're, it comes with its own tripod essentially. Yeah. Are those good mics? Well, they are. And here's why they're good. They're good, A, they're good live mics. No one can buy them because they were hand-built for oh. these people, right? Because they have, when I look at them, like I said, they look like Radio Shack mics. They're I like guess. EMI equipment or something, you know? Oh, okay. Now, they, they, on, the other, on the instruments, they were using Newman uh, microphones, which uh, these are original Newman mics, which are the best you could I think do. It's, I think it's Neumann. Drum. Neumann, sorry. And... Uh, the, the console, like, again, all of this hand-built vacuum tubes, awesome sounding. Right. And they're going through, like, well, and they're, you know, they're smoking and Fairchilds. They're and, smoking cigarettes and the ashes on the console. And they put, did you see how you put the cigarette on the string of the guitar? Yeah. On well, the, and they also put cigarettes on, <laughs> like, the Fender Rhodes, yeah, yeah. and you would see burn marks on the side of the thing. They're ruining it. <laughs> they're like they're burning all their crap. But they and have I'm like get them a goddamn uh, ashtray. Right now they have amazing amps. Right, like well, at the time, well, Fender Twin. Um, they're not. I mean, they're they're classic guitar. Well, now amps. people like drool if they can get one of those original Fender Twins. You know. Yeah. And but, at the but time, it's, it's just a could, Fender Twin. But you and I could buy one yes, that sounds yes. very similar for $800. Right. But, but I guess what I'm getting at is that even... Yes, it's just that it's a good sounding amp, right? And they have professionals like... So there's a lot of things that go taken for granted. Like, why do they sound so good? Well, they're going through good equipment. Well, they're also amazing musicians. And they're amazing musicians. Yeah, I think that's the main thing. Like, one of the things that I heard recently from an engineer... Because people were like, what microphone, I don't know what, what, how I got into this subreddit, but they're like, what microphone does, um, what's his face use? Oh. Adele or something? No, no, uh, talk radio, Howard Stern. Oh, Howard Stern. They're like, what? Or maybe I was watching a YouTube clip and I was like, my God, his voice sounds amazing. <laughs> what gear is yeah. that fucker using? Cause I, cause the microphone looked like a, just like a regular, like, I don't know, like a, um, like a Neumann or, no, not Neumann. No, an AKG, right? Like, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. yeah. AKG, right. Uh, EK, AKG. AKG. Yeah. Just a regular. I'm pretty sure that's, and they run it through a, it's really like a mic nice like I'm using, like yeah. our, like our mics, but maybe yeah. a more upper end. Yeah. But not like, it didn't look like it was $10,000. And I looked it up and, and I was like, what compressor are they using? You know, da, da, da. And then people were commenting, and they're like, hmm, I have that microphone, and that doesn't sound that good. And they're like, it's because you don't have Howard Stern's voice. No, absolutely. Howard Stern. You cannot discount that. You put him through, you know, a, a sure um, 57, and he'll sound amazing because Howard Stern has an amazing voice. Uh, there's no discounting that. At, in addition to that, like when they were recording at, at Abbey Road and at EMI and stuff, uh, those were well-balanced rooms with experts that were so good at partitioning areas and not letting things bleed. And Which and, is like, in that room, I'm like, because they have monitors pointed yeah, at... I don't know how they could do that. Like, no one would ever record like this. No, you'd, no. Have, you'd have headphones. No, it's crazy. Yeah. And, but anyways, I guess, I guess what I was saying was that there was a lot of stuff that, that they didn't go into at all that was like, 
EMI was providing for free for them. Well, for free because you know it's the Beatles, and it and and it's a lot. Even yeah. the fact that like their dude had had created this whole custom recording setup, right? Yeah. And they go in there and they're like, it sounds like crap. Yeah, yeah. Right. And it's so, like fine. Throw that all, all out. Yeah. <laughs> that must have cost a whole bunch of money. It doesn't matter. But he, on the roof, you know, they have, you know, it's the wind and right, right. The, the crowd. You know, anyway, um, other observations. Oh, I've, I think I knew this at one point, but I forgot. When they're on the roof, there's like a weird painting behind them that's like propped up. Did you notice that thing? It Where looks like they're on the roof? Yeah. Hmm. There's like this... Please, if anyone out there knows what I'm talking about, okay. can you please email me? Because I'm so curious about this thing. What that I, painting is? There's like a, it's like a multimedia art mm. piece behind them that looks like a piece of junk, but <laughs> I'm pretty sure it's a painting of some sort. I just want to... Oh, by the way, even when they're on the roof, they were still being recorded by the same equipment downstairs. Right. Now I'll point out, like, but still, if you want to buy a console of that quality today, it's a hundred thousand dollars. Sure, but if you, know? you and I had that equipment, yeah, we would not sound the same. And we were outside <laughs> on a roof no, in a January afternoon. You know no, what I mean? Like no, no. it would sound like crap. Yeah. yeah. Um, <laughs> Linda McCartney was so pretty back then. She was, and she was really um i felt like they had a very interesting relationship because there seemed to be a lot of love there she was quiet she didn't say almost anything um i thought it was interesting how mal and others would write the lyrics when they you know they would sort of dictate the yeah, lyrics yeah i know and actually um and mal would sometimes they, add his they own would add stuff yeah. Yeah, yeah that's why i was saying like can i get a writing credit paul yeah <laughs> oh there was a moment where all the engineers and producers were jamming around and I wrote a note. It's like, is this the start of the Alan Parsons project? <laughs> right, exactly, Alan Parsons. Um, also, Paul's hair is amazing. Oh, my gosh. His beard and hair. Yeah. Oh, it's so good. Yeah. I'm so geeky about it. Yeah, I mean, because I, I, Paul's hair went through a lot of different phases over the years, and some of them very unfortunate in the 80s. Yeah. He had like a total mullet yeah. at one point. And but this was peak Paul. This is peak Paul hair. Yeah. Yeah. And in uh, fact, it is the most iconic because that's what I know from all those Let It Be videos and from the roof. But the shot they and, have on the front of the Let It Be album, he looks like he has a helmet on his head. I guess so. But when you see the videos of him playing, yeah. 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 And he was in love with his hair. He kept playing yeah. with it all the time. And his beard too, which yeah. I, I've, had a, I've had a beard before. Yeah. And I definitely do that. Yeah. Um, <sighs> also, a little thing about Paul is that he's even better on piano than I knew him to be from this footage. I was like... I, I knew he was really good because he, he... His dad played piano. Yeah. He learned to play piano young and would entertain the whole family playing piano, uh, all sorts of tunes. So I, I had a pretty... And plus, he, he learned piano songs at the same time as he was learning guitar songs. But it's, you know, you know he sits down and he plays Martha, My Dear, and it's virtuosic. Yeah, you know, you're yeah. just like... Oh my yeah, god! Yeah, because it's not just the right. It's I could just, just listen like, to him play piano. Yeah, the first of all, he's playing on an amazing piano, but also his his touch is really nice. Have you ever seen another Bluthner in your life? No, <laughs> you know, because all the videos, there's this that that big white Bluthner on yeah. the side of that piano, yeah. and 
I, I was but like, it, it's a really nice and and it's amazing that even when they make it sound crappy it sounds awesome <laughs> yeah i don't think they made it sound crappy well with the all. newspapers remember yeah like, but they're I trying think, to like make it sound all like ratty well i think that was george good. martin's like compromise because yeah. i think what george was asking was because a honky-tonk piano is detuned yeah and I think George Martin was like, I'm not going to detune that thing. Yeah. Like that thing. We're just going to make it sound a little muty. Yeah, a little. Yeah. yeah. Um, and Paul was worse on the drums than I thought. Like when he was well, playing. But he was just screwing around. But I don't. But he he didn't. When he sat down on the drums, I was like, oh, okay, let's, you know, because I've, I've, I don't, especially back then, have any footage of him playing. Of course, on a track. He but, can, I mean, when you hear, don't, why don't we do it on the road? He's playing the drums. It's not an amazing drum part. No, it's fine. It's serviceable. Yeah, yeah. He, yeah. And he plays in the beginning of, uh, is it Julia? He plays in the beginning. And then Ringo takes over at the end. Anyway, yeah, I mean, but yeah. when he was just kind of messing around on the drums, it sounded bad. I, I feel like I, there's... I it sounded like a bad drummer messing around. It didn't sound like a good drummer messing around on the piano. From my experience, drums is the one instrument... Not the one instrument. That's not true. It's just drums is an instrument that you can't just translate into just because you understand piano and guitar. Totally. <laughs> um, I've been to that building where they do the... No. Yeah, you know what to it Totten, is? Tottenham? No, no, the, the rooftop building. Yeah, you, well, where the, you know, it's the yeah, basement, yeah. the whole... That used to be... Oh, man. You know what it is now? No. It's a Gap Kids. Oh. Huh? What? Yeah. You can't even tour it or anything? No. Well, you can go in. Can you go it's to the roof? Mul- it's a multi-stored. Yeah. It's a multi-stored That's gap. annoying, dude. But, and, there's, and there's a lot of Beatles stuff inside because oh, they know okay. that people... But you can't go up to the roof. Yeah. Oh, man. That's sad. <laughs> um, you should have thing- gone in there and like, you guys are disturbing the peace. I know. <laughs> it's just funny. It's, it's a gap. Yeah. You know? It's like it would have been so much better if it was like a law office or something. It's just like it's a gap, kids. Blah, blah, blah. Um, I thought it was funny how they kept stalling the cops. Okay, that was hilarious. And at the same time, I felt so bad for the cops because they're just doing their job, yeah. you know? They're like, and they feel so helpless. They're like, well, so <sighs> I thought in my head, because I've seen the the other cuts that they do, yeah. that the cops, uh, in reality, because they actually showed it true to time, yeah. the cops showed up Almost immediately. Well, and and in the if if this is what you're getting at, because like my memory from having seen the the Let It Be thing was, I was like, oh, the cops showed up and stopped it. Right. That was my memory. Right. But what happens is the <laughs> cops show up and they <laughs> they, they mess around with them for <laughs> what seems to be like forty five minutes. And in the minutes. end, they actually didn't stop it. Yeah. They they just sort of they just ended on their yeah. own, and the cops said, okay, good, okay, good, and. Like, it's not like they had more songs to play. <laughs> right. And then the um, the sergeant shows up, and he looks like a serious dude. And I was scared, because when he shows up, I'm thinking, oh, no, this is probably when they finally shut it down. But then he's like, he goes, I go upstairs? Hello, is it okay if I go upstairs? <laughs> I know. You know, and, I know. And he's like so polite. I'm glad you and I had the same experience, because th- he looks like that role in a movie. That's yeah. who you cast as the rough and tumble yeah. sergeant. Yeah, he looked like he was about like to say like, no, 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 this is we're shutting it down. And he's like, how many cops are here? Yeah. Oh, can I go on the roof? Yeah, is oh, it okay? I, it's okay. Is it okay? Is it okay? It's okay. Is it, it's okay. It's okay. It's okay. You know, he's Look, like being super nice. Are they yeah. upstairs? Okay. And they're and they're like, well, we don't want you to go upstairs because they're recording. And he's like, oh, 
Okay, well, you know. <laughs> <laughs> uh, the other inter- also the, oh, sorry, go ahead. <laughs> the other interesting thing about that I learned was that Billy Preston was extremely ad hocly added. Okay, so that another yeah, another one of my notes was like how amazing, amazing serendipitous thing that was where they were discussing him. First of all, yeah, they met him in Hamburg. Yeah. Now, to you and I, when when we hear that, that's like, oh my gosh, they knew Billy from the old Middle Ages of England. Yeah. But to them, it's just a few years ago. Well, eight years ago. But it's just a few years ago. Like, yeah. imagine you and I met someone in Vancouver right. eight years ago. And we're like, dude, that's the guy we met in Vancouver. Right. It's nothing. Right. And so they're like, yeah, Billy Preston. We saw him in, in Hamburg. Okay. He happened to be coming. He shows up to say hi. Well, so they mention him. Right. And they're like, wouldn't it be cool if we had a, a someone, piano player? Someone. They met, they go Billy Preston. They mentioned the Rolling else. Stones one, and then and then and then one day Billy Preston just Shows walks up, in he the had door. Another thing going on. He's just in town, and John and, casually says, "Like, yeah, you should sit down, play yeah. with us." And then they play, and it's and they and it's awesome, magic. Yeah, and then and I'm getting chills thinking about it, especially oh. on uh, "Don't Let Me Down." Da- Don't oh. let me down. Da- 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 oh, it's da- so da- beautiful. Da- don't let me down. Yeah, it's just it's like perfect. So, yeah, and and he, I mean, first of all, what instead a virtuoso! Of, instead of "Don't let me down," yeah, what a virtuoso, right? Like, yeah, that guy could play anything endlessly. Because what chart music did they give him? Yeah, how much prep did he have? Yeah, it was so. He good. sits in and he's like, "What's the oh okay?" Blim, 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 blim. Yeah, and so some of the iconic things we know in all these songs are his little licks, right? Oh, and then the next day. He doesn't come because, you know, they were just kind of messing around. And they're like, I wonder if we should, like, have an arrangement with him. Is yeah. he coming back? I don't know. We I should mean, pay him. <laughs> yeah, we, maybe. And we, I don't know if we can pay him. Do maybe we have should, money? He's like, we should have him in the band. And then, and then he comes another day and they're like, this is great. And, and you know, I think Paul turns to him and he's just like, is it okay that, you know, that we're doing this? Or do you have other things to do? <laughs> I've got nothing else to do. And he becomes another, you know. Well, I remember John, the, the, day, the day you were mentioning, John's like, uh, I wouldn't mind him in the band. We should have a fifth Beatle. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Which imagine, imagine how that would be. That's what I'm saying. Like, oh. if only George and John just did their own albums, oh, which would have been man. great. They could have had All Things Must Pass. And, and imagine what was, how what was John's first. Imagine it was that how his first progressive album? that the Beatles' fifth member is not Eddie Murphy. Yeah. It's freaking Billy Preston. <laughs> yeah. And so that was amazing. Then uh, the other th- uh, element of the story that was new to me was. You know, in other interviews, they always say, like, yeah, everything was falling apart. And then Billy Preston shows up and everything changed. But you clearly see that everything was changing before Billy Preston showed up anyway. Like, they probably would have been fine without Billy Preston. Yeah, I think think no no question that the second meeting or whatever with George, they reached some compromise. But as we were saying earlier, John finally showing up to play had a huge impact. Yeah, and I think George... Clearly made a choice of all right. I'm right, not I'll go I'm, along with this. I'm not going to be a baby. Yeah. You know, I'm gonna because he immediately shows back up and is just like, yeah, let's do yeah. this. Thing. And Paul seemed to tone down somewhat. Yeah. So. But you could imagine Paul toning down because George wasn't like yeah. poo pooing everything. Yeah, yeah, you know. Yeah. So. And but oh man, I, I'm sitting there like I was in awe of when it all was all coming together because really you're sitting there. It's one minute they're noodling, they're goofing around, and and then for a second it all comes together, 
And you're like, God, that sounds so good. Yeah. These people are so good at what they do. And it made me realize, like, um, the magic that, you know, you, we've talked about this before. The magic that happens in a room with people playing together. Yeah. Is, uh, it's beautiful. Totally. And, you know, I, I don't know where the next phase of my musical career takes me, but I do really miss that, you know, of having musicians that are masters of their instrument mm-hmm. that will, you know, figure out a part to my songs, you know, and, and make it and elevate it to a whole other thing, you know, but it takes so much time as you can tell from this movie, <laughs> yeah. you know? Um, and the last detail I'll say is that George talks about having Dylan in the band, you know, they're talking yeah. about getting other people. We should get Bob Dylan. <laughs> and then of course, traveling, traveling, Wilbury, super band. All right, let's rank the songs and let's get out of here. Oh yeah. Oh, sorry. One, one last little detail. Remember when Paul looks back and he sees the cuffs and he goes, woo. Like there's this little awesome moment where he's sitting there playing. He looks back and he sees the cops and he turns back and goes, woo. Yeah. Um, like, oh, we're in trouble now. Also, when he says, thanks, Mao, like I never knew what he said. Do you know what he means by that? When he says what? At the very end, Paul is like, and it's even on the album. He goes, thanks, Mao. John says, I'd like to, I'd on like behalf to, of the group, I'd like to thank, thank you all. You. I hope we pass the audition. And then Paul says, thanks, Mao. Oh, I didn't hear that. Okay. Uh, well, he's saying thanks to Ringo's wife, Ma- Maureen. I think oh, her name's Maureen. Oh, because she had it Well, because she starts to scream. She's, she goes, Oh, she goes, I Yay! see. I and, see. And okay. Paul kind of looks at her and he's like, Thanks, Mo. Like, okay. th- thanks for cheering for us. Okay. I didn't catch that and know that. That's awesome. Yeah. Okay. Anyway. All right, ranking songs. Yeah. So give me your uh, worst to best list here. All right. And then I'll chime in if. All right. All right. I'll chime in whenever you name one. I'll tell you where I put it. Okay. First of all, it's not on the actual album, but I am going to say, I think you were slagging a little bit, but um, Don't Let Me Down is a song I really like. Uh, so, Don't Let Me Down, where does it show up? In it's, the, a, it's a single. Oh. It's a B-side in something. Because I always thought it was on this album. In fact, it might be the, the, the B-side to Get Back. It might oh, okay. Be. Well, uh, yeah, I'm definitely putting that on in this ranking. So I didn't rank it, but if I ranked it, it'd be like in my top six or something. Yeah. Okay. Anyways, 12 for me. So is... so let's talk about that. So okay. don't let me down. I put number four. Oh, okay. Okay. Um, and I, I I don't know why I didn't know it was on, on this album, but anyway. So why were you... It was sounding like you didn't like it as much. No, no, no. I, okay. Um, I mean, I don't like... I mean, when you're we say in general, the songs in this album are not. Yeah, so I mean, I, so it's fourth best on this album, but like, I actually really like "Don't yeah. Let Me Don't Get Me Down." But wait, what? Don't let me don't down. don't get me down. Yeah, <laughs> because you know, <laughs> uh, da, 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 I, like if I was Those to put in a song, and, a you know, Beatles playlist of thirty songs, like this definitely wouldn't be in it. I guess the reason I like it so much is just because of that performance and their harmonies and the they sound so good doing it. Maybe yeah. as a song by itself, like if someone did that song, maybe I wouldn't be as impressed. But they themselves, and with that organ, it sounds really good. Yeah, it does, especially <laughs> as you hear the iterations building up to yeah. it. But yeah, it's not, it's not one of my favorites. But my number 12 is 1 After 909. Oh, yeah, I have that at 11. Okay, and the, the reason it's is... It's a great rocker. It's a great rocker. It's in a, in a style that if that song had been in one of their early albums, I would have been okay with. Right. At this point in their career, because I never actually loved that style to begin with, now I'm like... Yeah, I don't care. I yeah, don't. They were they were too floppy to make that sound sound the way that they would have back in the day. I think because the modern 
a modern this is going to sound weird, but like a modern song that they did that I really enjoy, but that has elements of that stuff is uh, the ballad of John and Yoko. Mm. But that song's that song's evolved and and I think it's got a lot of soul to it. This song is just a rocker and yeah. it's kind of meaningless. Yeah, I mean it, right. It's a great song and honestly if I were to put a song on on this album, that might be one of them. <laughs> but in terms of like its importance, it is in my fun. Life, it's a fun song. Yeah, but, but in terms yeah. of its importance in my life, yeah. number eleven. And keep in mind, all of these songs would rank miles ahead of my least every, favorite every song. O, every Oasis yeah. song. Well, I'm, I'm not going to go there, but there's a lot of bands I don't like. Okay, every Coldplay song. Ele- <laughs> you're you're pissing me, <clears throat> pissing me off. <clears throat> all right, number eleven for me is Maggie May. Yeah, I had that too. Oh, dirty Maggie. I mean, it's arguably not a Beatles song. It's away. it's a traditional song. So. Yeah, and it's a fun little ditty. But yeah, and and it's one of the thousands of goofball yeah. uh, tangents that yes. annoyed me in this whole yes. thing. I'm like, will you please stop playing some old, you know, Chuck Berry song terribly? By the way, but then play work on your goddamn music. And I agree. At the same time, I think the reason they include it in the album is probably the reason. I like it is that there's something charming about it. Yeah. And it's just John's charm. It's yeah. all it is. And they're harmonizing well. Yeah. Yeah. And then number 10 for me. Oh, wait. What was your number 11? One after nine. nine, nine. Oh, my, one my after 13 nine. is Dig It. Oh, you you did 13 because of Don't Let Me Down. So right. Dig It was your 13. Yeah. Your 12 was Maggie May. Maggie May. And then 11 was One After Nine. nine. Yeah. So Dig It, I put number 10. The reason I like Dig It better is because it sort of like opens up this little window into a fun moment. Yeah. And it's like, you know, like the Rolling Stone, dun, 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 and they're just jamming. So for me, it's like, uh, I don't know, there's something about it that that it's like me getting to look into a jam session. and Yeah. Because it starts in the middle of it, you know. It's right. Like, and it was awesome in the documentary seeing they're jamming, 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 and I'm thinking this sounds a little like the dig it. Yeah, jam. that was that was nice to see. Like, oh, that's where that's where and they that's where they here. excised <laughs> that bit. And they say this part of this appears in the. By right. the way, that was awesome in the documentary. Every time they said this take is the one that appears on the. Right. I was like, oh my god. Yeah. Um, number nine. Number nine for me is I Me Mine. Oh really? I I, I struggled a lot. I, I think it's great. I put that one number five. I think I Mean Mine is great. Now, look, first of all, n- number nine amongst other songs, like, it's a great song. Yeah. All through the day. I think it's a beautiful I song. I Mean Mine. It's beautiful. Yeah. I- I'll explain why I ranked his other one higher, but it, when I get to it. But for me, this one, it wasn't that it is not good. It's just that I just happen to like the other ones more. Okay. So it's a taste thing. It's just a. I kind of like this song more because of hearing how it was developed, because I almost mm-hmm. feel like. The recording doesn't do it justice. I could see that because when yeah. he's just playing it on his by himself, and he's showing it to the rest of the band, I'm like, that song. If you recorded it like while my guitar gently weeps, because it kind of has that similar vibe, that could have been an amazing tune. Part of the thing that ranks it down for me a little bit, and I think this is maybe where you're where you're going with it, is that the chorus I'm not as crazy about. So like the verses are beautiful yeah. and intriguing, and then the chorus ah, me, is me, mine. fine. Yeah, it's arguably a bridge, honestly. Ah, me, me, my. It's fine. Yeah. But, but you can see how George developed that in response to all their bluesy exactly. jams, you know? Now, I have a funny story about this. Last night, I was sitting there, and I'm like, if, I was listening to the beginning of I, Me, Mine, which starts with, you know, the guitar. 
And I'm like, wait, where, where have I heard this before? And I kept playing it, and I'm like, and in my head I was hearing like a version of that that was a different song. Like a Kanye song or something? And I'm thinking, wait, 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 wait. Am I imagining things? And it started getting sort of surreal. I'm like, maybe I'm having like an aneurysm. I don't even, <laughs> and I kept like, but I kept going with it and I would sing it to myself and try to vary it. And, and I was, and I was finally giving up and I was sort of like feeling depressed. And then all of a sudden I'm like, ah, it's an Elton John song. And I went back and I, I was like trying to figure out which one is it? Which one is it? And it's in, uh, it's in his album, uh, Empty Sky, I think it's called. And the song is called Lady Samantha. And it starts with, Tam. And then, like, a similar kind of chord, and then a guitar going, uh, like, very similar. And that's why it it, it actually, when you hear them side by side, you're like, oh, there's a similarity there. Yeah, Elton John, I think, outwardly worshipped the Beatles. Well, this came out in January of 69. Oh. Yeah, so I was wondering, and I don't think so, because it's not that close. But that was the first thought I had. The song came out. Yeah. So, so they copied it, kind of. Well, the first thought I had when you, when, the same thing you just said, I was like, oh, I wonder if Elton was like so into, but then I looked at the date and I'm like, wait, this was, this came out in Jan- or January of 69. Would Elton have been even on their radar at that point? Yeah, he's, he's British and that's a small scene, right? Like uh, it's a tight knit group in London. But that said, when you listen to the song and you listen to the intro, I don't know that that connection is evident. It's just that I know that song so well that for me the connection was there. Yeah, yeah. I'll play it for you later and you'll see but anyways uh, what was your number 9 uh, my number 9 well my number 10 I'm, I'm one oh, behind yeah, yeah. you was For You Blue I'm guessing that's your other song that you put up higher yep um, I you know I, I've just never really liked that song I, I think John's uh, slide is goofy you know you know and it's just it's a blues song, you know. And I thought it was interesting that John said he's like, "Oh my god, that's my favorite." You know, John John says that about yeah. that song and I'm like, "Why?" <laughs> like I it's wonder. such a boring blue like it's fine. It's it's a 12-bar blues song. It's it's not terrible. Um but uh no, I I can I totally understand what you're saying. I'll explain my reasoning in a minute, but I don't I would never fight someone on this one. Like Well, tell me now. Okay. So I actually put it as number 5. Okay. There, I've always That's funny because we have I Me Mine yeah, for You Blue. Like I've well. always liked this song before this documentary. And this I documentary, love you more than ever, girl. This, this documentary I mean, made me appreciate it even more. It's got a beautiful... All of his, George's lines are, I would say, honestly, given his uh, solo work, I would say peak George is like 67 to 71. Yeah. Like his yeah. his his chords and his song yeah. structure and his melodies are just they're killer. Very interesting. Yeah. And so this song, even though, because I guess that's part of it, it's just a freaking blues song. Yeah. What you don't like about the slide guitar to me makes it sound haunting. Yeah. Like there's this weird rubber bandy thing, like like an old radiola or something like, and the groove is cool it's almost ahead of its time in a way like and uh, the lyrics are fine i I don't look too much into it but it's pretty it's a pretty melody yeah so anyways so my number nine is i've got a feeling i've got a feeling feeling but i it's not it's not my favorite and uh this documentary i think made it worse for me honestly oh really because 
just hearing it so many times because well, there's it, some <laughs> songs where they played like "Get Back," "I've Got a Feeling," "Don't Let Me Down." You know, they, there's some songs where they played and made us watch over <laughs> and over again. Well, and this is one because Paul's part ends up going so high. It's one that he couldn't bl- blurt out the whole time. Yeah. So it's the one rare occasion where you actually don't hear him sounding great sometimes when he's rehearsing. It. Like it's a it's a similar song to oh darling you know sure. it seems like he wrote it at the same time yeah, yeah. and oh darling is such a better song like and, it and has he can't a, sit there singing those kinds of songs all day long right but like uh you know i've got a feeling of feeling deep inside oh yeah oh yeah it just seems to repeat itself it doesn't it doesn't have a it's almost like he had a great idea and I, couldn't follow through i agree i put it as seven I put it slightly higher than you. The thing I really like about it is it, it creates kind of this foundational, almost drone. Right. It seems like that was kind of all of their, well, maybe particularly Paul. Like, I think Paul was getting into, like, drone stuff. And I really like that, right? And it's the Indian influence, maybe, you know, but I really uh. like that. Now, I don't, so on the one hand, I don't love what happens chord and almost structure wise with the chorus like it gets a little too rockabilly or something however what saves it for me is paul's voice yeah when, in the actual performance is yeah like it's intimidating right it's like the wow. rooftop performance that wow. they use has great energy to it and he just nails it. and so that's why but it's still only a number seven for me and it's kind of a a, a risk like there's yeah. there's a few parts where you're just like that's weird. Like, you know, and nobody told me. And then George. Like, it's such a weird um, arrangement, yeah. but it works. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, so then my number eight? eight is Get Back. Okay, my that's my number six. Okay. Now, I struggled because I, I really like Get Back. In fact... Yeah. I'd say it's one of the songs that I want to hear on a somewhat regular basis. I think when I was a kid, it would have been up there, but in my Beatles mania years, it was never like a go-to song for me. It's fine. It's great. Yeah. But it, yeah. I'm not like but dying. I, I, I'm not dying to hear I think song. I realized through this that I, I don't like it as much as I thought I did. It's a great jam, though. It's a great jam. Like when when they when even when he starts noodling, you're just like, it's a great song. Bam, bam, it's awesome. Yeah. Um. So my no 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 go ahead. What's your what's your number eight? No, that was my number. What's number seven? Number seven for me is I got a feeling. So okay. Uh, my number eight is Dig a Pony. Yeah. Um. All I want is you. I, I kind of like that line. It's sort of Led Zeppelin-y to me. But in terms yeah. of a song, uh, I dig a pony. Like, I don't know. It, it, it's just a, it's a pretty mediocre uh, Beatles song in my, in my book. I, I put it as number six because um, I really like John in this. I, I don't, I'm, I don't know if I get what he's saying. I don't know if he gets what he's saying, but I, Get it in a weird way, like I dig a pony. Well, originally can... it was called "All I Want Is You," yeah, which he's singing to Yoko, yeah. you know. 
Um, which I totally, and I, I kind of like, there's a few moments and watching them perform it in this documentary makes me appreciate some moments of that song. But when anyway. I thought the symbolism that I, maybe I totally made up, but it was like, he's saying like, uh, like I like something and taste, tastes are what they are. And so like, he's sort of like almost justifying his, his like and love of, of Yoko. But whatever the case may be, musically, it's very interesting. And this is one of the songs that when I was really listening to, I'm like, this is such a departure for them. Very right. Interesting. This is what you were talking about earlier. It's yeah. like, it, it's like nothing they've done before no. or not like anything that no. you've heard from other bands. It was a weird confluence of yeah. their complicated songwriting structure and bluesy stuff that they're yeah. trying to kind of integrate. Uh, my number seven? Six. My number seven is Long and Winding Road. I'm guessing you have it higher. I do. Um, I I like this song. Definitely, you know, top. it's in the top half of my ranking here. But of the top half, it's not my favorite. <laughs> like, and, and, I've, and I don't think I ever really, of Paul's piano songs, considered this. Like, I bet you, of Paul piano songs, this is definitely in the lower half. Um, it's a great song for sure, and if this was the only song I'd ever heard by the Beatles, I'd be like, "That's an amazing song." But when I think You're about just all ranking right, with everything, yeah, yeah, yeah. So, what's your number? What are you on? Uh, I did. Uh, so, well, where did num- you put? Where did you put "Long and Winding"? Oh, okay. The "Long and Winding Road" for me is number four. I I really do love this song. I I remember listening to it over and over um, in college, and there was something so well longing about it. You know, it's so. Yeah. I could picture it. I could picture a long and winding road. Yeah, it's one of it's it's it it's um a rare Paul song that not a rare, but uh one of those Paul songs where the lyrics don't cheese me out, you know. Right, I mean? and you could visualize something. By the way, um so and remember, right. he's 26 when 26. he writes this song. The long and winding so road to the age of 26. Everyone including Paul complains about the Phil Spector arrangement. Yeah, like, I don't. Oh, I don't understand he why. He cheesified it. He yeah. had all the strings. I love it. Not yeah, only I think that, it's fine. I went back. Here's my gripe of wrath for the day. I think so. So here's what I think happened. This is my speculation. So if you don't know, and you're still listening, if you're not a Beatles fan, you're still listening three and a half hours into like this. wow. <laughs> but um, I think that the album kind of sucked, particularly in comparison to other Beatles albums. And I think they needed a scapegoat, and they scapegoated Phil Spector because I think the Phil Spector mixes. Although you could argue diminish a little bit and aren't to your liking, but given what he was working with, I mean, these were extre- especially when you watch the documentary, you're just like, my God, they basically just jammed for a few days and then just pieced out of the studio. Like they didn't go back in and clean up. They didn't do the work to re-record right. or anything. And so like, I've never thought that the Phil Spector mixes were terrible. No, I never did. Not only that, before I knew any of that, drama i liked this album it wasn't my favorite of theirs but i liked it and part of it is that when you listen to songs over and over and over every little detail starts mattering and you can tell when it's not right as an example uh you know there's there's versions of songs out there like uh bob dylan songs or other songs where there's different versions and I always know immediately. Oh, right. what, one famous one is Carpenter's Top of the World. There's like three different versions of their song. Totally. I grew up with one specific version. Yeah. And when the other ones start playing, 
I immediately I'm like that's not the right one. Right. Put st- turn that ab- abomination. Yeah. Well, when off. we were watching uh, Get Back the documentary, I I was like, oh, is this the album track? And then Paul would do a little variation. Like, no, that's oh, not it. Oh, so <laughs> we're not listening to the real track. So here's my gripe of rap. <clears throat> I don't know if you heard that a couple of years ago they put out this thing called Let It Be Naked. Yeah. 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 And I listened to it, and and people are like, oh my god, so much drew, better. Yeah. I hate it. Hate it with a passion. Number one. They took out all the strings on Long and Winding Road. Well, guess what? Some of the melodies that I remember are string parts. Right. Number one. Number two. I mean, arguably, they're uh, riffs on the piano part. The the string part is a is basically matching kind of what Paul. Yeah, but like the da 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 da. Oh right. That's gone. Yeah. What? Yeah. Okay. Now, why can't I hum that if it's not important? Okay. <laughs> yeah. I I gotta say. I listened to three or four of them. I didn't listen to the whole album because I was so incensed. What I'll say is that Paul approved it. And this to me was the Lucasification of the past. It was George Lucas saying, I didn't like what I did with Star Wars. So I'm going to go back in and add puppets. Right. Now, this was the opposite was I'm going to take all the puppets away, take all the effects away. I actually thought that Star Wars shouldn't have spaceships and shouldn't have any lasers. So I took all the special effects away. Yeah, I mean, I think when you listen to the naked versions, I don't think you're like saying, oh, my God, what an amazing I now can right. hear the beauty of it. No, you're it's a it's a different version, different mix, if you will. And, and it's, they, it's naked. It's like extremely um, empty sounding, and they they did something that ruined one. So, uh, in, in "Let It Be," the last time he sings the the verse, when it's like, uh, "And in my hour of darkness, she is standing right." Oh, sorry, uh, no, in the very end, last verse, um, he doesn't play the normal A minor. He briefly plays like a, a B E D or something over the A, and then. And then corrects it, and no one has ever been able to confirm whether it was like a purposeful kind of riff or a perp- or a mistake. But it sounds amazing, and it makes that moment so intense. And they picked a different take that doesn't have that at all. Mm-hmm. And Paul approved it, so ugh, right for breath. Okay, <laughs> yeah. So um, yeah, I've got. Well, I'm glad we agree about that because because like it's such a hipstery thing to say like. <laughs> Oh, the naked is so yeah, much better. Right. It's fine if you like the naked. GTFO. Great, you know it's great, but it's 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 not it's not objectively better. Yeah. So my number six was Dig a Pony. Yeah, um, we already talked about that. Yeah. My number five. Oh, what did you say? Your number six already is Get Back. Oh, Get Back is your number six. Okay. Yeah. My number five is For You Blue. So I put it up there. I talked okay. about it already. It's it's fine. And then my number four was Long and Winding Road. What okay. are your number? Oh, we've five? already talked about mine. So give me okay. your number three. My number three is Across the Universe. Oh, my, that's my number two. I figured you have it high. It's an amazing song. Yeah. And I wish there was more jamming of that song. But of course, there wouldn't be because the yeah. version we get is John by himself. Oh, I didn't know that. Yeah, they they okay. they jam with the band, okay. and it doesn't sound quite right. And then the version we get on the album oh, is John just by himself, just doing it. right? I don't know. I didn't know or that. Maybe with Paul harmonizing a little. Like bit. Like I said, I've forgotten more about there's, the Beatles. There's though. no drums, you know. There, there's no. <laughs> yeah. There's no. Like they tried to make it into a rock four piece yeah. song, and it is a very pretty, beautiful lyrics. And it's, yeah, it's argue. I mean, if there was a song. There's a there's a handful of songs that I would send to an alien planet as a representation of 
our culture, this would be one of them. So I have a feeling I know what your number three is. Which is, is my number two. Two of us. Two of us. Yeah. Two of us is a is the encapsulation of their relationship. Yeah. It's an amazing They write it together. Oh yes. They work on it together. And it's beautiful. It's and it's objectively at now, now we're talking about one of my favorite Beatles songs. Yeah. Now it's no longer just like one of the better ones in this no, album. No, no, yeah. One of my favorite Beatles yeah. songs. Yeah. Uh, and then, of course, number one, Let It Be. And number one is Let It Be, which is not only the number one in this album, is my favorite Beatles song, the first one I ever learned. Yeah. And uh, it's pretty easy to play on piano um, and a beautiful song. And I noticed um, while he was playing it that I don't play it right. <laughs> he actually... And maybe you play it right. I don't know. But I play a really simplified version of... Because he does these little things with his left hand that I'm like... He does something with his left thumb that I'm like, what are you doing with your left thumb? (laughs) So I've gone through three phases. Phase one in college, I played it probably the way you play it. Pretty straightforward, right? Then I took a time years ago, maybe when you and I were... Maybe in 2008 or something, where I sat there and listened so closely. And I learned all these little details. And I looked online. You played the B. Yeah, yeah. All that stuff. Oh, no, that's... And then years went by and I forgot almost everything. And so then now I play it back to the normal version. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Um, But yeah, uh, two of us... Uh, is also an added level of of um, I don't know appreciation for me is that I played in a you know a duo with Danny. We, oh, you guys played that one, right? Yeah, and it might have been the very first song we even um, practiced together because we're both mega Beatles fans, yeah. and it's a harmonizing song, pretty easy to play, <sighs> and so it's good. always been one of my favorites. And we could sit there with two acoustic guitars and play it. And it might have even been one of the first songs we played live. But yeah, I I used to, this um, guy named Danny, friend of mine, and we would play um, on the streets. We would play Pike Place Market. And um, we learned how to busk, how to play with two acoustic guitars. And he's an amazing singer and guitarist. And uh, I don't know, it was just a really fun kind of chapter in my musical career. So it's interesting that in the early Beatles albums, um, the songs were simple, but they were complete beginning to end, full verses, full choruses, usually a, a middle eight, stuff like that. And George would add the additional, Martin would add the additional sprinkle of production. And so they sounded complete. Yeah. Then in the middle career, they took all the craft time to get the songs perfect. Yeah. Not only perfect playing, like just the, the, the arrangements, all the details, everything. And then by this album, these are not fully complete songs. Well, Let It Be is. But like some of them are not fully complete. Yeah. And yet that is part of their charm. It's it's yeah. kind of a, a window in time of their... Yeah. You know. and, and, and this song, along with maybe a couple other songs, you really... Um, appreciate another skill that we haven't mentioned is the Beatles' ability to change the song arrangement mid <laughs> midstream. Yeah. To hear the early versions of two of us and you're like, well, it's not it's not terrible, but and and in my head I started kind of forgetting what the real version is right. and then by the end of the thing when they play the real you're like, "Oh my god, yes. This like how they they got there eventually, yeah. you know." And you hear them kind of randomly getting there where 
Paul's like, well, what if I, what if we just played acoustic, you know? And, and, and George is like, you could hear George like, shit, if we have three, three guitars. <laughs> what do I do? Yeah. I think George literally says like, well, what do I do? And he, and George is like, or Paul's like, well, you know, and. And Paul's and, a and, good guitarist. So he immediately starts adding little licks and stuff. Right. Immediately he adds that. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Like, and you're like, he just randomly came up with that. Yeah. And the other thing I'll say, just a side note about George's part, I've never liked his part in that song. Oh, okay. Whatever. Yeah, yeah. It's just, it sounds too, I don't know, loose or something. Mm. And I get what he's trying to do with that. And he actually, it was interesting to hear George, I think he was going through a phase where he liked that style of riff. I guess so. Like, yeah. really kind of, run it, run it. Like, yeah. it's even in, like, this that kind of, yeah. that kind of uh, full step up slide thing. well you get that idea that like you know george is someone that just learned covers to start with then he's learning sort of the parts for his friend's songs that are in the same vein he never like went to school he didn't do like the official learning and now he's being exposed to other guitarists who are studio musicians and like very theory oriented all these things so he's picking up little tricks and little tidbits right. and he's trying to apply them <laughs> right yeah and I, I always wondered about george's part because I, you could sort of hear it in the background, and, I've, and I always was like, "What's going on back there?" I'm pretty sure that's George, you know. Yeah. And I mean, what do you think of his guitar part in that song? Well, unfortunately, I don't listen to guitar as much as I do bass, piano, vocal. Well, there's no bass in that. Song. No, no, I'm I'm saying in general, like when I hear a song, yeah, like my it's ear... definitely mixed into the background. Well, and so it used to be worse. Like when this is part of what was so hard for me to write guitar parts is that I would realize that I might have never paid attention to the guitar part in a song that I loved yeah. and then I would listen to it and I'm like oh I, that's weird I've never heard that you know mm-hmm. but anyway so I don't know I, I, didn't, I don't catch that part oh well case. it's not a great part you know what I will say uh, this maybe my final thought about this whole thing was that there's a lot of Beatles doubters out there that are like you know uh, were they really good musicians all these things and what I, well, I, don't, be- I don't think anyone says that. No, a lot of people do because, A, objectively speaking, none of them were musically officially trained, right? So, like, if you're talking about, like, well, compared to... You and I aren't musically trained. What I mean is, um, like, when you compare them to, like, virtuoso guitarists and virtuoso drummers and all these things, the Neil Peart's and the uh, Eric uh, Clapton's or Eric, uh, the other great, Ingve Malmsteen, all these guys, like, of course, there's no comparison. None of them, even Paul, can hold a candle to virtuoso players on those instruments. Well, like in terms of speed, is that your in terms of like uh, ability to play those instruments to a high level? Blah blah blah. blah. Well, I'm arguing with the people that you're arguing with, but it's not. I mean, you can look it up. It's it's not an uncommon sentiment that the Beatles weren't that great of musical players, is what I'm saying. Right now, however, number one. These guys grew up playing live in constant live venues where they were entertaining as F. Yeah. Like, they would blow the minds of their audiences. It wasn't just... Look, objectively, these guys aren't like Adonis's. Yeah, Paul's kind of cute, but that's not why they were blowing the minds of everyone. Right. They were so entertaining. Yeah, and, and when, you know, they set their mind, particularly to their vocals... They could, they could, ha- uh, you know, deliver some, especially John and Paul, 
some of the best vocal performances you could ever ever hear. hear. Yeah. So yes, John, the, 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 the soul, the and the style, you know, like that was actually one thing about this documentary that gave me a new appreciation for John on this during this time was just how how soulful and melodic some of oh. his lines were. You know, you're just oh, like, yeah. wow, that's like a beautiful line. So sure, he'll sound a little rough around the edges when he's just like goofing around. But when he really when he hits puts it, his, but when he really puts oh, his effort into oh, it. Oh, dude. Yeah. And they're sitting there playing these songs live on a rooftop. And not only are they sounding amazing, they're sounding so good that that's the version that ends up going on the album that they put out to the world. Yeah. And and this is over a period of a couple of weeks with tons of dysfunction in the middle, which which just proves these guys were amazing players. And yeah. and I mean players in the sense that they could lock in, they could pick up things quickly, they could you sound like glue so well. The fact that you know how it is. When you get five musicians in a room, and it's like, hey, let's just start playing, and it sounds good somehow. Yeah. That doesn't happen. Yeah. When Billy Preston joins in, he could have stood, stood out as a sore thumb because these other musicians are shown to be not that... No, that's not what happens. You can tell Billy's got a lot of licks, but they gel, and they sound amazing together. Yeah. So anyways, I, I just leave this going, proving what I already knew, which is... Man, yeah, Paul is a music savant, but this band was awesome. And I would have given anything. Imagine seeing them live at like the Cavern or in one of those early, really energetic shows, you know? Yeah. Oh. Oh. Or yeah. seeing the, the rooftop concert. <laughs> well, I thought this episode would take maybe an hour and a half. But it's uh, almost four hours, Berto. It took almost as long as the documentary. <laughs> <laughs> All right, everyone out there, all you need is love and take care of yourself because you deserve it.